0: Ends never story, the where, place, though too welcome. Weekly pick potter of 21
1: episodes is
2: 2007-11, July 4.
1: Hey Ron,
2: the next time you're
3: freaked at me for calling you out on the Quidditch pinch, Just remember that time.
1: Welcome back to Pirate Weekly. This is Ryan.
2: I'm
0: Rina. I'm Jen.
1: And I'm Mac. Rina is back.
2: Ooh. Yay! Yay, Rinna!
1: <laughs> Rina, meet Jen. You were both in episode six together. Remember that? I know. Aww. Good lord, it's been a long time. No, you were in episode seven, because I remember, because you were making fun of me hitting uh, Bambi with my car. It's coming back to me.
2: I think I did another episode besides that.
1: You did with Phil.
2: I did a couple. Okay. Yeah. I love Phil. Bill, where are you? Where in the
0: world is... Bill, 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 Bill,
2: Bill, Bill, Where in the world, in the world is, is Bill. Garmin San Diego?
0: Just, like, rock out to that song in the dorm room. <laughs> rock out, I tell you. Rock out. That's hot.
2: I know, it was so hot.
1: Serena, how's it going?
2: I live in the sticks. <laughs> Literally. We live off of a dirt road. <laughs> I mean, I don't get cell phone reception here. I get cell phone reception at Walmart, and that's the only place in town.
1: I have a question. Have you gotten (laughs) to the point where Walmart is viewed as civilization?
2: You know, it's getting close, man. And honestly, like, and and this is one of the town's claims to fame, we have the smallest Walmart supercenter in the world. Oh, no. I'm, I'm dead serious. It's the smallest one in the world. And before that, this the Walmart that they had here was the smallest regular Walmart in the world. But now it's just the smallest super center. It's a Walmart, and it closes.
0: <laughs> it closes. Wow, I didn't know they closed. I know. <laughs>
1: wow. Rina is so far in the sticks, they haven't discovered 24 hours.
0: <laughs> I remember going to a Sears in Arkadelphia and being so excited that there was a Sears... Um, And I went inside, it and it was a bunch of catalogs. I was like, "What oh, the heck?" Yeah, is this? the catalog
2: <laughs> stores. I've actually the been to one. Gosh. I was I like, think, "Wow, yeah, it's bad." And I found out that apparently there's a rather large Apple following here. So <laughs> it's amazing. There's the a sp- what? Apple computers, like Mac. Oh,
1: okay. I thought there was yeah. like a, I thought people just Apple. loved Apple.
2: No. Right. <laughs> so, Jeez. Oh, apple trees. <laughs> this is how nerdy these kids that we hang out with now are. There was a LAN party at my house the other night, and they played like some ridiculous mud game that's text based, and there were like 11 people here, and they all had Macs. I was like, I couldn't even believe there were 11 people in this town that had laptops. <laughs> all right.
1: Here's, here's my question for you Do you have one of those signs that has the population that some old guy changes whenever someone moves into town?
2: I'm pretty sure we do. You
1: know what amuses me about this? Picture Draco Malfoy living at Grimmauld Place. That reminds me of you living outside of civilization, and now look yeah. where you are.
2: Yeah, it's ridiculous.
1: I think they're going to assimilate you.
2: <laughs> Hi, y'all. How's it going?
0: I'm... So you are selling me, basically. I'll, I'll...
1: We're going to get all these emails. I can't tell when Jen and Renner are talking. It sounds exactly the same. <laughs>
2: Oh, well, I busted out into my Bostonian accent the other day, and everyone in the restaurant just looked at me. <clears> like, <throat> most of them had never even heard someone with a Bostonian accent before. They're oh, like, what are you I was oh. for?
1: I'll be in New York this weekend. I will think of you, Rena.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> As you ride a subway car with more people that are in my entire damn
1: county. That'd be great if I took like people like if we just like took like a random sampling of your neighbors onto the subway. They'd be like the people in those Star Trek episodes who come back from like the 1700s and they're on the Enterprise. Like they're like, "What is this place?"
2: Right, exactly. It's it's insane. You know, these people think a happen in time is going to Batesville, Arkansas, <laughs> population forty five thousand because it's the home of NASCAR driver Mark
1: Martin. You 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 make a left turn and then you make another left turn. And then you make another left like
2: It's the dumbest thing in all Christendom, but
1: Okay. I just wanted to make sure it was just it wasn't just me. All right.
2: No, it's not. It I like... think it's about as interesting as
4: watching Hammers, but you know.
1: I don't want to spoil your date for the weekend, so I'm not going to
4: bring that up. All right. Well, now, hey, I think it's a little more interesting than horse racing, because in Kentucky, all they'll watch is horse racing, and they only do one lap, and there are no good crashes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I went to the opening of the um, Oak Lawn racetrack in Hot Springs, and I wore a really big
1: hat. Oh, can you send us pictures of this... <laughs>
2: I will. I will send you
1: pictures. Sorry. I will send
2: you pictures of my, of my town with one stoplight.
1: Start uploading them now. I'll get them by episode 38.
2: Oh, oh. All
1: right.
2: You guys, the mm-hmm. newspaper in town. There are two newspapers. One is like the actual paper... And the other one is I swear it's just two random yokels that have a printing press. God only knows where they got it from. First of all, the, there there is an article in there about this hobo that lives in my friend Jimmy's backyard. And, and, and they actually they said they were like and this guy, his name is Marvin, but um, everyone calls him Lightning, and we just call him the Hobo that lives in Jimmy's backyard. But Light- <laughs> he, Light- they were like the in, this, in the article in the paper. It said he was standing on the square when what did he see but his sister's boy walking up the road <laughs> in the paper in the freaking newspaper. I cu- you know oh. I quit I, I, I quit this town I swear. <laughs> When his boy came up, yeah, his sister's <laughs> boy walking up the road. <laughs> Honestly, that's that's the one thing I can say is that living here for just the month that I've been here, month and a half almost, it, it's really made me change my stance on hunting. <laughs> because I really, I never was a fan of hunting, of like deer hunting before now, but now I am all for it because those morons
1: are everywhere. Renna, right I hit one at 60 miles an hour. I hope you're proud of me.
2: I am proud of you. I'm very proud of you. One, <laughs> jumped through my, my mother-in-law's um, sliding glass
1: door. Are you serious? Was the door open at the time? No. <laughs> what?
2: <laughs> wow. Yeah. One, like, freaked out. ran alongside my car <laughs> halfway down, like, for, like, <laughs> at least 200 yards, just ran right alongside my car. It was playing with your car. I guess so. We sit on my back porch and watch the deer run across the lawn for fun at night. Yeah, just because um, there's nothing else to do here. And seriously, I have I have forty television channels. My whole life has been an exercise in downsizing. That's what <laughs> that's what I really think. Because I'm I'm originally from New Orleans, which had a population of like 2.4 million, and then I moved to. Um, Little Rock, or outside of Little Rock, Arkansas, which the metro area has about—I um, don't even think they have five hundred thousand people in the whole. No, metro not area. even. And then I moved to Fayetteville, which is a great town, has a population of sixty-five thousand people, and now I live in a, in a town where, where the the we are the county seat, and the county has a population of ten thousand. Oh. And uh, so I swear I'm going to have to move to the moon or something after this to get any smaller than where I am right now.
1: Rena, I just have one question for you, and then I'm going to let the whole thing go. Do you own a pig?
2: No, but I do have a goat. <laughs>
1: Rena, I was kidding. You own a goat?
2: Yes. Really? We don't have a lawnmower. <laughs> Hold
1: on. <what>? <laughs> <laughs> Are you messing with me? No. What's the goat's name? Bernard.
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, I guess it's no different. I mean, we have a lot of cows, so.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, he's not really our goat. He kind of like we borrow him from from our neighbor.
4: Except he's weak. He's a he's a community lawnmower?
2: <laughs> he is. He is. <laughs> we have – see, okay, our landlord comes by and mows, like, the big part of our property that we're on. But we have this little fenced-in pen area for my dogs, and it's too small for him to get his lawnmower in there. And so we were having to – at the beginning, we were having to use a weed eater and just cut all the grass down with a weed eater. And then our neighbor, who's this little 80-year-old woman, was like, well, I have a dog run on the other side of my house, and I just have a goat. And I just put him in there and let him eat down the grass. Do you want to borrow him?
1: So you borrowed Bernard the so, goat.
2: Yeah. So one day a week, we we go over and borrow the goat.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Rena, I have simple advice for you. Just just kill yourself.
0: Rena's my new favorite person. Ryan, be supportive. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yeah, and and she's borrowing
1: a goat named Bernard. I can't help her with this.
2: Wow! I told you guys I live in the sticks.
1: You didn't tell me about the goat.
0: (laughs) I love that you have a goat that you borrow, yeah, for lawn mowing
2: purposes. Yeah, there was a traffic jam in town today because somebody's horse uh, threw a shoe in the middle of the road.
0: Oh, is it near Amish people?
2: (laughs) Actually, we do have a large Mennonite community here. Yeah. There's been an uprising in the Amish population in the state of Arkansas because uh, Arkansas is one of the few states in the country that will let you get a driver's license without a picture on it. And the Amish don't want to have their pictures taken because there's something in the Bible about graven images and they don't like Mm -hmm. to have their picture made. So a lot of Amish people have recently moved to Arkansas because they can get driver's licenses without pictures on it. I'm really not sure why they need driver's licenses, because if they're Amish, they're not driving cars anyway. <laughs> well, any. I think
0: there are, like, certain levels of Amish. You know, yeah. there's some that it's certain things of technology. But, man, so. if you want
2: a quilt, I got the hookup. <laughs> All right.
4: <laughs> Mac, how are you? <laughs> I'm, I don't have any goat stories to tell. Um, I'm in Ohio. We just have fields and fields of corn and and i don't have a goat in my backyard i use a lawnmower i'm sorry okay that's fine uh so jen um
1: you know we've gotten quite a lot of email you know from last week's episode you know about you in the car you know i'm not sure if you remember this you forgot to park your car and it rolled away from you
0: yeah i remember (laughs) thanks
1: now it's been a week is anything else new or has life settled down for you
0: Well, you know, with me, that never actually happens. But this week, you know, Texas flooded. (laughs) I don't know if anybody's watching on the news. I don't know.
1: I think a couple of us, yeah.
0: Okay. But, yeah, evidently, Texas is underwater. And evidently, Texas as in my street. And so I went to Walmart. And, like, I'm a dallier, At Walmart, so I'll go, and when I go to Walmart, it's just my time. I don't know if very many women take their time, but it's my time, and I go and I look at you know every aisle and really dwaddle. And I love going to Walmart. You know, it's my thing. I love it. Yes. So I went to Walmart and I was probably there about two, three hours and I had bought, you know, our month's groceries because <laughs> I, you know, usually I only try to buy stuff once a month or, you know, then you have the necessities you have to buy once a week. But anyway, I had bought everything and I was on my way back and I noticed that our street that we live on, like we live on a dirt road too, Renna. Um but the, the street that you get onto the dirt road was flooded
2: through oh
0: no and there was you know fire trucks and policemen in front of it and so i got out thinking there was like i don't know a wreck or something um and they were they were saying what do you doing? <laughs> it's flooding <laughs> and i was like well my house is that way and you know it's one of those there's no back way into it you just have to go down the one dirt road and you know, I have a Toyota Camry, and it's just not good for, you know, forest driving. Um, right. So,
2: no off-road action.
0: That's right. No, it's no off-road. Um, and so I was like, well, let me just drive through it. And they were like, um, it's several feet high. <laughs> and, it, and so I was like, well, I don't know what I thought. But I was like, I have dairy products. <laughs> In my back seat, lots of dairy, pro- and I just knew they were going to go bad. Like I'm just very paranoid about like certain things, like meats and thing and milks and things staying out too long. So I always like rush home to put them in. And I was like, I have dairy products, and I was like very concerned. And so the the nice the poor nice man, um, he was like, Well, go get the, the bag or two that you need to put in the fridge, and and we will get you over this. And I said, Well, okay. And so I go and get my, I don't know, 18 bags that need to go. And, like, I just look ridiculous. And so the poor firemen, like, so they had two of them carry my bags over. And one, like, flipped me on his shoulder and, like, carried me over this stupid flood. And, like, they had themselves hooked to, like, these ropes that somebody was holding from the... Like, evidently it was pretty bad. Um and so I left, my, and it's raining, okay, guys? It is raining, and I'm wearing like a white shirt. It's terrible. So I'm like, <laughs> so I get to somewhat dry land, like it's only somewhat puddle ish and, and not, you know, the Nile. And so I like run, like, I don't know, the two miles home. And by the time I get there, like, seriously, my shoes are like thickened with water. My, my hair is matted. My clothes are, they're, I mean, it's just, they're soaked. So I get home. I get my dogs, and I have a chihuahua, and I have a red healer. And oh I'm sure God. that y'all, y'all know the differences. Inside. <laughs> <laughs> so I change clothes, and I put on flip-flops, because, you know, those, won't, those are okay to get wet. And I, like, get trash bags, and I put trash bags all over my body. And, like, I cover my dogs in trash bags. And, did, you,
1: did you take a picture before you left the house?
0: Oh, you know, that did not occur to me Uh, Uh,
1: you'll remember for next time Well,
0: like my car is still out there with all these like strange people (laughs) yeah they're policemen they're good but you know i don't like that so i run
1: out (laughs) they carried you home i think they're okay
0: i know so i'm carrying nova my chihuahua and like pulling my my red healer because she doesn't want to get wet so she's been like trying to go home the whole time so i'm like this i'm like by the time i get back to the nile I'm, like, about to be passed out with exhaustion. It's been, like, an hour or two. This has taken forever. And we get there, and the policemen are still there. And, like, one of them gets my dog and saves my dog and puts it in my car. And one of them gets Nova, and one of them carries me back over. And, like, instead of it going down, like, I thought that they would, like, suck the water up while I was gone. Like, I don't know what they're doing with there. The giant it's- wet pack. I, don't, I thought, well, they had their like tubes out, so I thought, well, maybe they're going to vacuum it up or something, And but they didn't. It just got worse, and so by the time I got over, they were like, okay, they weren't letting anybody else pass, so evidently, I was just a special deal, because I had my dairy products, and so I get back, and I had to go and stay at my parents' house for a couple of days, which was inconvenient, but yeah, my first flood. I was like, Ryan, should I get a bucket? i I don't, you know, (laughs) Ryan and tornadoes. I don't know. It was ridiculous. So that was my, um, my street flooded this week story.
1: That's awesome. (laughs) Jen.
0: I live in natural disaster land, apparently.
1: (laughs) As I was telling Jen, this is where the Bible was filmed. So, you know, she has (laughs) kind of um, erratic weather. I think we're going to have a special segment, you know, at the beginning of every episode. What happened to Jen this week? right.
0: Oh, God. No, let's just pray that Jen has a very boring week. That would be a nice repose.
1: Yeah, I'm sure that'll happen. Mac, anything new? Uh,
4: I'm moving to Philly in three weeks. Well, that's exciting. I'm desperately trying to find uh, roommates right now. So in uh, two weekends, I get to go take a two-day vacation to go secure a place, come back for a week, get all of my stuff for the next year, move all the way back out there with everything. Uh, live below the poverty line for a year, uh, and and maybe take the occasional side trip to see Ryan and Danielle in New York.
2: Well, there you go. Now, is this for school or for what?
4: This is for the uh, Red Cross. I'm going to be volunteering through a program called AmeriCorps.
0: Oh, you're doing AmeriCorps? So, yeah, I think that's really fabulous.
4: I think it is, too. Thank you. Good for uh, you. And with any luck, my time won't be so taken up by damsels and drowning in their streets uh, and me helping out with the red cross that I will be able to continue podcasting. Awesome. <laughs> I'm not gonna be anywhere near Jen, so I'm thinking all the disasters will be pretty far from me.
1: Yeah, if you're in the if you're in the actually, if you're listening to this and you're a representative of FEMA or the Red Cross, just find Jen and just follow her around and you oh. will be needed.
0: Rita, they're so mean to me. Do you hear this? <laughs> I do, ma'am. I, I, I don't know.
1: Yeah, okay, I'm being mean. I you. <laughs> Jen, but we do love you though.
0: I know, I put up with so much though. We uh,
1: wouldn't make montages of you if we didn't love you.
0: Mm-hmm. Stop, right, you just keep saying that.
1: I'm still... Enjoy
0: your weekend away. I'm
1: gonna have to like check in every twenty minutes to make sure <laughs> you haven't deleted my password to the to the server. I can do that. No, I made sure you couldn't uh, do that, actually. Um <laughs> i have mac over here i have mac over here turning me into kermit the frog i have to be careful about my security all right just a little bit of news before we go on uh we've made a schedule for the next few weeks because i am a planner this episode if we're doing our jobs well uh will be released on july 11th if you were listening to this on july 11th you've obviously missed the fact that there is a movie available for you to go see jen will you be at the movie
0: Um, yeah, I've already bought tickets for like the first three days of
1: showing. Rena, do they have movie theaters where you come from?
2: Um, not in town.
1: How far do you have to drive to see the movie?
2: Uh, About 45 minutes.
1: Are you, are you doing that? Yes. Do they take goats in the movie theater? And if so, how much do you have to pay to get the goat in?
2: Actually, I'm not sure about that. Um, my, my brother-in-law is 15 and he's, has already said that I'm, I'm going to take him to see the movie. And then um, some friends of ours are getting married on the 14th, so the following uh, Saturday. And after at their rehearsal dinner, there will be the rehearsal and then the dinner, and then the entire wedding party is going to see Harry Potter. <laughs> so
1: That is awesome. I love that. Yes. All right, so the movie will be coming out July 11th, as will episode 21. I wonder which one will make more money. And uh, we will have... <laughs> Episode 22 coming out July 18th, which will include an interview with Melinda. So if you have any questions for Melinda, if you have any comments, uh, you can voicemail them in to Powerfic Weekly. You can call our voicemail number. You can email us at staff at PotterficWeekly.com. Uh, there's information at the end of this episode about how to do that. On July 21st, we're actually going to do something which I think is kind of interesting. Right after half Prince came out, I was one of those people that never read fan fiction, and I was kind of lost in wandering aimlessly in the woods looking for something new to read that was Harry Potter and I didn't know what stories were good. I don't know who any of the players were. You know, I was a very sad person then. So what we will be doing is we will be recording and releasing a Deathly Hallows survival guide. And it will basically give you uplifting, optimistic, really good fix to read that will just make you feel better in the event that you know, that the worst happens. So that will be coming out <laughs> On july twenty first, so if you have any contributions for that, please contact us. Are and- we gonna
2: be I'm sorry. But you sounded like Kermit the Frog. <laughs> <laughs> what is up with you in Kermit the Frog? Like Are we going to be <laughs> Are we going to be doing any kind of live read through or not read through, but like you know, do you know what I'm saying I, on the release yes,
1: night? W- yes, we will be. We, it won't be on the release night. On the 28th, we're going to be releasing our predictions and our response to Deathly Hallows. We're going to record in advance what we think will happen, and then we're going to air that after the book comes out with our thoughts. So there's no way we can get around you know thinking the Dumbledore is the giant squid. And we are also going to have a podcast coming out in early August. Uh, The topic of it will be the end of canon, its effect on fan fiction, and where the fandom goes from here. I'm really excited about that one,
4: so if anyone has any thoughts on that, send them in. And don't forget, we also are doing the Order of the Phoenix review.
1: Yes, the Order of the Phoenix review will be released uh, whenever we are able to release it, and it will be recorded whenever Jen gets back from the movie theater and Rena finds her goat. So if you have any thoughts (laughs) on the movie, send them in as well.
2: I don't lose it. I mean, I know where it is.
1: (laughs) Where is the goat right now? next door. All right. You sure? Yes. Can you see the goat from the window?
2: Uh, no. No, I can't. I I can see one of her, like, 87 cats, though.
1: Oh, God. You're in hell. All right. (laughs) And the first A Year Like None other podcast will be released, dum-dum-dum, August 15th. Chapters. And I'm jumping into uh, the chapters for tonight's episode which are chapters 24 through 29 of Melinda Leo's The Seventh Horcrux. We're going to start off with Echoes in Time. Dun, dun,
3: dun. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun,
1: all right, so this chapter begins with uh, the trio going to see Dumbledore's portrait. And we've said this before, one of the great things about reading this fic now is that it's getting us primed for the release of Deathly Hallows and we get to see how one author interprets all of the clues that we have from the first six books and you know the, the the big things that we know we're going to play some type of role into the last book. We know we're going to hear from Aberforth Dumbledore. We know we're going to hear from Dumbledore's portrait. We know obviously we're going on the Horcrux hunt. So this is one more issue that uh, Melinda gets to address. She gets to address what's up with Dumbledore's portrait, and there's a lot of debate in the fandom uh, right now as you know we're recording this before the book comes out. Will the portrait be kind of like you know former headmaster's Blacks portrait, and will it kind of be you know almost like a just an echo of the former person with some of the traits or will it be, you know, a Dumbledore who is literally like the man who died in every way, except for the fact that he's obviously um, not corporeal anymore. And what Melinda tells us is that the portrait is very much the man who died. The portrait, you know, was updated by a Dumbledore continuously and essentially has all of his knowledge and his uh, intuitive skills. And it's essentially like having Dumbledore back. I wasn't as happy with that decision that Melinda made. I really think I would have preferred this Dumbledore to have severe limitations, to have Dumbledore be able to intuit somewhat, but really not be able to make any type of, you know, cohesive, you know, suggestions to the trio. It just seemed too much like Dumbledore's death wasn't a hindrance to Dumbledore coming back and helping. It's like he never died, and I think that they needed to really live with the fact that Dumbledore was no longer there. I just, I I think that was too much, and I think it actually... Um, mutes some of the um, effectiveness that we see um, in chapter 30, which we'll talk about next week. So I wasn't, I was glad to see Dumbledore. I was glad to, you know, have his presence in the fic, but I think I would have rather preferred him not to have been there as much as he was.
2: I mean, I, I've, I've always been kind of torn about the portraits, about how they're created and how they, you know, what of their former lives do they retain? Because in a lot of cases, you know, you don't hear the fat lady ever talk about what her life was like. Well, obviously, you don't see the fat lady very much, but you know, you d- you never hear any of the portraits speak specifically about things that happened when they were alive. They talk about things that they've seen and places that they've gone in other portraits, like you know, other locations where their portraits are. But they don't ever, you know, talk about what happened when they were alive. And I mean, I guess I've always just kind of been curious about that. And I, I would agree that it seems like this portrait is just too he just knows too darn much
1: yeah and you know it's it's not that Dumbledore couldn't pull that off if anyone could keep that knowledge you know in a portrait and and make sure it's available to Harry when the time becomes necessary Dumbledore could do it I, I believe that not every portrait is like this one but I think that just as a plot device it was necessary for Melinda to make sure this information got to Hermione and to move the plot along and I feel like Dumbledore shouldn't be a plot device I really felt like you know having you know the wise old man being able to say look I know I made mistakes and I know that you know things didn't work out the way i had hoped they would but i know harry that you can do this and kind of push harry in the right direction and firm him up and give him hope that's one thing but being able to have you know dumbledore translate you know the the books and to you know have you know minute by minute you know advice available that's very specific it's it's almost like he's still there
4: but at the same time the portrait cannot be useful in the way that they could use uh, someone as wise as dumbledore to actually help them when they are in the presence of a horcrux to help them destroy them to battle death eaters in the way that dumbledore took out the ring because they c- can't exactly pull the portrait off the wall and you know carry it around with them whenever they need a hand so well, i like would the be fact that
1: awesome if they did though <laughs> that would be great wouldn't it
4: it would be cool but i mean i like the fact that although i agree i think It was a little too much of a a help. It could have been a lot worse, and since they really don't use it excessively throughout the fic, I almost, you know, was willing to let it go this time just because it didn't get used excessively and because they couldn't just take it around with them everywhere they went. Um, So it made it feel like it was more just a one time plot device than, uh, you know, a real all the time tool.
2: It doesn't specifically bother me about this, but. If you look at the story as an archetype, as the, you know, he's, this is the hero with a thousand faces. In all of these story arcs, the master has to die in order to let the student reach in and develop his full potential. And which is part of the reason why in this story arc it was pretty inevitable that Dumbledore was going to have to be killed at some point because Harry couldn't come into himself and fulfill his destiny while he still had Dumbledore around. And I feel like using the portrait like this, where he has all this information, is kind of a cop out, you know.
1: When you think of what Dumbledore, the portrait offers Harry in the fic, he offers you know behind the scenes assistance. He offers uh, you know translation services. You know, he, he he offers moral support. He doesn't come up with the plan, and he kind of is exposition king. He doesn't really you know lead anyone. Harry's still and his friends still come up with the plan and execute the plan and do the job themselves. Dumbledore really is kind of like the guy in the background. He's like a rather O'Reilly and he's feeding them information and he's <laughs> bucking them up and he's sleeping with his little teddy bear. And, you know, and I just think that, you know, even, it, and I think that's correct. Cause I, I don't want Dumbledore coming back from the dead and telling Harry where to go and taking that choice away from Harry and that role away from Harry. But I just think that, you know, they're, probably could have been ways to have Hermione have found the the translation book or even have Abe do it, have Aberforth do it. He plays a role, but I think he could have done a little bit more there.
0: I think I actually liked that they had Dumbledore's portrait because, I don't know about y'all, but I'd always envisioned the portrait um, if somebody had a portrait done, it just slept until they died, and so when it was activated, when they die... It held all of their thoughts and memories of how they were when they were alive, because it's not activated until they die, you know. And so I liked that that Dumbledore knew what was still going on. And I think y'all even said that y'all didn't think the other portraits talked to people very much. Um, but I always thought that those portraits were very, very old and I think because it's different because they actually know Dumbledore, you know, because they never come across a portrait of someone they know. Like this is the first we've actually seen that. True. And and Mrs. because Black, of probably. well, yes, but all she does is spout how she hates everybody, and who wants to listen to that? True. But um, I didn't like that he wasn't used to the potential he could have been used. The only thing we really get to learn from the portrait Dumbledore is that he really was wrong about severus all along which you know and in canon if that really is the case i'm going to be slightly disappointed again in dumbledore because i think it even says you know my mistakes are usually very very large ones um or whatever but to me that's huge and i i hope that that's not the case and and for plot-wise, that is just my own personal feelings that has nothing really to do with the fanfiction or canon. But I, I hope that doesn't happen. But, but that was kind of disappointing. But what I thought was was mostly disappointing was that Harry didn't feel that he could talk to Dumbledore about the horcruxes, like the things that I really wanted to know. For example, did he know that Harry was a horcrux? Or tell Dumbledore the the locket we went after wasn't real? Or... You know, something of value. I mean, use him if he's going to be useful. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but I mean, he didn't fa- want to spare the portrait's feelings, and I just thought it was unnecessary. Yeah, I didn't I mean, understand.
1: Yeah, I mean, he does tell Harry that he suspected that he may have been a Horcrux, and that was one of the reasons that he implied that Nagini was a Horcrux to give Harry the information that living creatures can be Horcruxes, hoping it wouldn't be necessary. And, well, actually, that doesn't make sense because he had the, the soul device that let him see the snakes within Harry, so he should have suspected, although he could have just thought that was, um, you know, the echo of the connection to Voldemort. But, I mean, I, I don't want to harp on it too much, but I think that if you're going to have, you know, Dumbledore be the portrait. You've got to, you know, literally like Renna said, you know, throw him in your backpack and bring him with you. But he did, at the end of chapter 29, give Hermione the information she needed to uh, allow Harry to create his own horcrux. And he did provide logistical support like that. I just, my thing is, if the old guy dies, like Joe Rowling said, let death be permanent and, you know, use what he taught you while he was here. Don't bring him back from the dead to, you know, just keep uh, feeding the plot. That was my only uh, gripe about that. And I do love the part where we get to hear a little bit about Dumbledore's impressions of Professor McGonagall. And he basically (laughs) says, do not mention it. It is not as if I am overwhelmed with things to do these days. Minerva is a good woman, but it is not as though she has a wild underside that would create a wonderful source of gossip (laughs) and entertainment.
2: I know. I love that. I absolutely love that line.
1: I think that should have been followed by, you know, Harry, Minerva is a very handsome woman. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. That's just my thought on that. I'm I'm Albus Dumbledore. You know, I'm the greatest wizard to ever live. And now he's essentially, you know, the guy that sits in McGonagall's office and watches her knit. It's, it's quite sad.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He should go visit the other portraits or something. I portrait can't imagine Dumbledore that, just Harry. sitting there.
2: Well, who knows? Maybe your life as a portrait is different.
1: This yeah. That's
0: just, yeah. Maybe you don't realize that you're a portrait or something.
1: What did you think of the story that Harry was the only person to ever um, accept the lemon drops?
4: I was so touched by that. I love that. Yeah. That that was really really sad. Yeah, that was really sad. I I mean, I thought that would be a very Harry-esque thing to do. And when Dumbledore said, you know, I'm afraid I cannot offer you a lemon drop because you were the only one who ever accepted them. I was just like, oh, you know, that just showed that they had that special bond. That's just another adult figure Harry lost. And that made me a little sad. Yeah.
2: That's true. And it's something that, you know, he's not used to people giving him anything. Obviously, when he came to the school, he didn't have people just offering him things. Most of the time, you know, he had to fight for what he got if he got remembered, you know. And so all of a sudden, someone just offers him something and he just takes it. And it's similar to, you know, he always took food from Hagrid, even though we know from canon that Hagrid's cooking was bordering on lethal you know?
1: Yeah. No, that's true.
0: I could have sworn, though, that other people took lemon drops in the canon series. I mean, it was sweet, but it just seemed a little stretched. Like, I would have been like, I would have got, I would have took it. I don't... He's the only well, person out also... of all those years that took a lemon drop.
2: I mean. You know, but also you can imagine that it's kind of like going to the principal's office at school. You You don't usually go unless you're in trouble. Oh, I you know, right. and yeah. when you're in trouble, you don't always think, ooh, candy, you know.
1: <laughs> and if you're to believe Gobble of the Fire, you know, the thing could bite you and cause internal... Yeah, that freaks me out.
2: <laughs> uh, yeah. And weird. so, you know, people don't, when you go into, you know, you go to see an authority figure, you're usually in trouble, which means you don't exactly have an appetite. But Harry was in Dumbledore's office more than most for reasons other than disciplinary infractions you know so I mean and that could be part of it as well to explain why other people never took the candy just because right. you know they're they're in trouble you know
0: <laughs> well I'll agree I will agree with y'all that it was it was touching and sweet
1: yeah and I do want to say this one thing I, you know as much as I thought you know Dumbledore was a little too alive for a portrait I did really respect the fact that Melinda put the conversation in that everyone wants to know Harry confronting Dumbledore about Snape. Yeah. One thing that, here's the thing if you poll the fandom, I think 92% of this fandom is convinced that Snape is working for the Order. And 8% thinks he's, you know, death eater and always has been, always will be. So when I'm reading The Seventh Horcrux from the beginning, I'm waiting for Snape to, you know, come over to the good side. And I'm waiting for Snape to be revealed. As, you know, Dumbledore's loyal servant right up until, you know, the end of the chapters for tonight. I'm still waiting for that moment to happen. And Mm -hmm. it doesn't. And, you know, going through this scene, you know, there's there's such a predisposition that Snape will reveal himself, you know, to be good all along. And it just it just doesn't happen. And, you know, Harry confronts Dumbledore with that. And Dumbledore continues to say, you know, he wished he tried harder. It's his fault. He shouldn't have let it happen. Dumbledore's as guilty as Harry is. I mean, look at Harry. You know, Hermione gets a paper cut and Harry feels instantly guilty because if she wasn't his friend, she wouldn't have been near the book, you know, looking up the curse to kill Voldemort. I mean, he feels guilt for everything. And even Dumbledore, while he doesn't seem to blame himself as much, he does regret sincerely that Snape turned out the way he did. And Snape, like... Dumbledore has been saying throughout the entire canon series, it made a choice. And that choice belonged to him, and he is responsible for the actions. But Dumbledore, even knowing that, still looks back and regrets the fact that he didn't take Snape more seriously when he was a student, and he let Snape get away. And maybe Snape was working for him for a while, but now he'll always doubt that. So I just thought that was a really great moment between Harry and Dumbledore, when we see that even though Dumbledore is gone, he had many of the qualities that Harry himself has and it kind of strengthens that bond between almost a grandfather and grandson if you if you want to look at it that way. I just thought that was a really uh, touching moment between the two of them.
2: Mm-hmm. I did like that. I, I like that they addressed it you know because obviously that's something that's been percolating on a lot of people's minds as to how that interaction is going to go what's going to happen to him at the end, at the end of that character.
3: Yeah.
2: And that's, I mean, one thing that I really like about the entire, I mean, the entire series, the entire canon series, is that it it gets into the idea, you have juxtaposing characters. Characters who come from similar backgrounds, but who make different choices. And we get to see how different their lives turn out. I mean, you can look at Harry and Tom Riddle as those juxtap- juxtaposing characters. <laughs> you know, they start out with similar upbringings and they have similar things that happened to them in the beginning of their lives but look how differently they came out you know you can look at Sirius and Draco they both came from pure blood families who were raised to hate muggle-borns and things like that but then they made their choices and you know look how they turned out and I really like that they put that contrast there these books are kind of aimed towards children it, it gives them that message that you know you are more than who your family is, you Mm. can make these choices. And I really like that they do
1: that.
4: Anything's possible, yeah. And the only other relationship that hadn't been brought up is Peter, who also betrayed his friends. I mean, that's just another betrayal where he was close to to James and Sirius and Remus and yet still managed to join the wrong side. Um, And, you know, I think Harry is kind of getting this sense of regret Through other people's betrayals, you know, he watched Dumbledore trust Snape, and it turned out bad. And he knew that his father trusted uh, Wormtail, and that just ended bad. And and to see him go through these, you have my big thought is, what is this going to do to his own thoughts about who he can trust in his life? Because he's got to have the people he's close to, but he's also seen so many people betray their friends when everyone was so certain they were good that it's, it's, it's got to wear down on Harry's own thoughts about at any moment one of his own friends could turn on him um, and I would think that'd be a scary thought for someone his age to have not that that gets brought up but that's me thinking a little beyond the fic but it's there
1: yeah and it's one of the reasons I don't think he tells anyone if you want to look at it from this fic or the end of Half-Blood Prince he is told don't tell anyone about the Horcruxes tell only those you seriously trust those who you would you know trust with your lives. And even if you think of it, you know, James and Lily would have put Peter Pettigrew and they did put Peter Pettigrew into that position. So it's one of those things where we're constantly told on one hand, you know, let people in, let people help you. But on the other hand, you're told, you know, someone has betrayed you, you're going to die. So it's, it's, <laughs> yeah. a, you know, it's one of those things <laughs> where, you tricky. know, yeah, you, you really can't win here. You know what I mean? Yeah.
4: Well, I mean, at least Harry's carried that order out. You know, he has kept it very small. He's only told Ron and Hermione and Ginny, up to this point, and they're the only ones who really know everything that's going on.
1: Well, technically, he told Ron, Hermione, and Remus. Ginny found out from Hermione,
4: right? Well, yeah, but I mean, even Remus doesn't have all the details, does he? He
1: had most of them. He had—I don't think he had really the origins down, but he just knew it involved Horcruxes, and he, yeah,
0: he didn't know that Harry was a Horcrux. I no, don't think
1: he didn't, and unfortunately, before he could find that out, Remus bit it. So. Oh. <laughs>
2: Terrible. Terrible. So,
0: why is Rena laughing? Renna is laughing.
2: I just, your turn of phrase there. You know, because he's the werewolf and he bit it har, har, har. Uh. Anyway.
1: Rena's like, I live in the woods. It's the funniest thing I heard all week. You know? I gotta admit, I I, I didn't pick up on it. Uh, Listen to old episodes, man. (laughs) Your show.
2: Believe me, we've used that joke before.
1: Oh, we have. Yeah. And uh, moving on from the scene, we have Harry come up with the idea that we need to go to the Riddle House because three people were murdered there, two Horcruxes have been found so far, the diary and the ring, so there must be a third one there. And it's a place that is very uh, important to Tom Riddle, so he may have left the last Horcrux there. Dumbledore seems to agree, and Ron, Hermione, and Harry and Ginny head off uh, You know, down the front of the school you know, across the grounds being uh, watched by Draco and Pansy towards the gate where they're going to apparate to the Riddle House and one of the little bits of character moments I love here is that Ron makes the comment anything to get out of the school and away from these books you know he, he's tired of doing research so of course Hermione's like glaring at him and there's like these invisible daggers probably, like, shooting into the back of his neck, so they're not talking, and Ginny and Harry are flirting, and I I just love the little character moments. Like, they're, they're on their way to the home of the Dark Lord, and Hermione's pissed at Ron because he insulted their books.
0: Yeah, I think instead of, and I'm sure this sounds a bit snarky, and I don't mean it to, but I think instead of me, like, getting into the seriousness of what they're still doing, it felt very, like... Very teenage drama and and although I enjoy the little quirks and the little, you know, back and forths between the the couples, I felt that it was a little out of place and because of that I couldn't get into it and, and enjoy it as much. And in fact I think the only part that I really truly enjoyed of this chapter is the end when it's like things actually start to take the serious nature and the serious feel Mm -hmm. that the chapter I think is trying to give us when Harry starts to have a seizure. I really like that Ron is the one who grabs him and holds him and makes sure he doesn't hurt himself. Like That's the stuff that really appealed to me with this chapter, not the little, oh, you're a prat and blah, blah, blah. And I felt like it was just kind of thrown in there. It kind of took me out. I kept having to try to get back into the story.
1: Yeah, I will when, that, when
0: those happen. I
1: will say, you know, obviously they operate to the Riddle House and Harry is so fixated in the graveyard, they operate directly to the graveyard. And there's that moment, I think it's a great character moment, where Harry feels the need to tell everyone what happened there. He needs to point out where Cedric died. He needs to point out where Voldemort was resurrected. He needs to point out where the the grave was holding him down. He needs he needs to share this with someone because it's been a private hell he's been living in for the past four years. And I think I think that that was an important character moment, and I think a lot of the chapter was based around getting Harry to that point, and getting him to Dumbledore, and getting these, you know, moments that have, you know, been hold, you know, and getting these moments, you know, out onto onto paper, just 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 allowing Harry to have these very healing moments, you know, with his past. Although I'm not sure why, from a plot driven reason, we we go to the Riddle House. I mean. Essentially, we go to the riddle house and, you know, the characters, you know, search for a couple of minutes. And, you know, this references to, you know, Harry trying to protect Ginny and Ginny, you know, going off on her own anyway. And there's a really random moment where Harry pretends to be a vampire to scare Ginny. And Ron, of course, starts laughing because Ginny cursed Harry and Harry admitted he was sorry and it's all happening on the same day and he thinks it's priceless. And it leads up to the point where Voldemort realizes that they're at the Riddle House. And I love the language that Melinda uses when Harry starts to become inhabited by voldemort you know cold calculating realization and a sense of accomplishment he can literally feel like he's almost like a camera and that voldemort's in his head and is looking around and recognizes the door and the desk and the atmosphere and knows instantly they're at the riddle house you can almost sense him you know calling the death eaters and you know to go there and finally wipe out harry potter and there's that like Jen just said the, the sense of adrenaline that, you know, pumping. We need to get out of here now. We can't apparate in the house. We need to get outside. And they make it outside. And, the, you know, the chapter ends with, you know, Harry, you know, falls to his knees and he suddenly is afraid that he's actually going to die in that godforsaken place. You know, just at the last possible moment, you know, they apparate back to Hogwarts. I think there were some very solid character moments built in through this chapter. I'm just curious. It's kind of like with the Ravenclaw Museum. I'm curious why we went there, and the only reason I can possibly think, and I'm trying to get into Melinda's head a little bit, is that if we didn't go there and if we didn't go if we didn't go to the museum, it would have been too simple. It would have been that Harry never would have gone anywhere unless he did, and if he did, it meant they grabbed a horcrux. This is the second time they've had a false alarm and I'm assuming that's what she was going for and building some character moments along the way, although if that's what she was going for i i I have to feel as though there isn't that sense of this isn't working, we're not finding anything, there isn't that sense in the from the characters that they're striking out and striking out and striking out it It just it feels like I'm missing something that I should be realizing is making me feel like I'm not reading it carefully enough uh,
0: That's the same feel like I keep asking myself. Why are we going to these places? There's no backup or reasoning and I just I'll I'll go okay and here we are and and I'll accept it but I will be I I constantly am questioning myself what are we doing? What was the clue? Did I miss the clue as to why we're going here? And it just seems like some of the the reasons for these things aren't aren't there and I I mean I'll go back and I'll really try to read every line and try to figure out what is going on. And it's just kind of like the characters are figuring things out on their own and I haven't been included. That's how I feel a lot um, with a couple of the places that they've jumped to to go. And and I don't know. I didn't. I thought that the reasoning for going to the Riddle House for there was two found there. And so there must be the third one there. Like, Tom, seriously, Voldemort, you're stupid. How many... What is the point of creating all these Horcruxes if you're going to leave them in a pile somewhere?
2: <laughs> I mean, well, I think honestly, the, there weren't there weren't th- there weren't two found there. There were there were two created there, is what they're saying. Okay, okay, okay. That's why they were drawn back to the Riddle House is is not because they were found there. It was because there were three murders on that night, and Dumbledore assumed that he created that Voldemort created three Horcruxes from those three victims. Which is why they brought them back to the Riddle House.
1: You know, obviously, we know from tonight's episode that the tiara is a Horcrux; it wasn't created there. You almost yeah. wonder if it was created at the Ravenclaw Museum and then moved to Hogwarts at some point, possibly on the day that Riddle came to apply for the Defense Against the Dark Arts job. Although that doesn't explain to me why uh, the Death Eaters were still guarding the Riddle Museum. So there, there, there are some um, continuity gaps i think i'm just not catching up on and i'll be the first to say when i think the story you know is very natural and flows very well i feel like some of the earlier chapters tonight are choppy and then it gets really really good so you know i I have a lot of great points coming up later but i just feel like a, a couple of these like i didn't feel like there was a purpose to go to the riddle house i think there were ways to bring those character moments out uh you know independently
2: Well, I think the thing that I think about this chapter is, first of all, from an author's standpoint, sometimes you have to write the crap that feels forced, and you know it feels forced, and you hate it, but it's it's expositional moments, it's things that just need to be done, it's kind of like house cleaning, you know, you have to take care of these certain things, and you just have to kind of do it, and a lot of times it feels really forced it doesn't feel natural at all and you feel like okay everyone's going to hate me for this but you know it's just something that you have to do to kind of move the plot along and secondly I mean the thing I liked about the little the kind of banter that they have going on in the beginning of this or in the middle of this chapter is because it's one of the times that we get to kind of we're kind of forced to realize that these are still kids you know Because so much of the time in these stories, they have to be adults. They have to be... fight. They're fighting a war. You know, they're constantly... Their lives are constantly in danger. They're, you know, on the run from forces who are much older than they are. And, you know, every once in a while, you have to kind of realize, okay, these are just kids. And, I mean, that's kind of why... I particularly like that she kind of peppers that you know rather juvenile dialogue in the story because it does force you to remember that these are you know these aren't adults who are trained and you know all that stuff these are these are seventeen sixteen seventeen year old kids who are doing the best they can and and every once in a while they're gonna act their age.
1: Brenna, I just have one question for you, because I completely agree with everything you just said. I just have one question for you, because I know you weren't here in last week's episode. Uh, When you were 17 years old, did you ever tell a boy that his clothes would look better on the floor?
2: Like, in the way that I'm thinking you're meaning that? Yes. Yeah.
1: Okay, just just asking. Because me too, but I was 24 when I did it, so I just thought... That was my thing because it's like you know, I I was thinking, you know, I'm not sure if Harry's the type of person that would try and play a joke on Ginny in the dark, but Melinda's Harry has progressed, you know to a point at this where he obviously doesn't care anymore and he's, he's gone a lot more bold over the course of, of this story and at the end of Half-Blood Prince that you know, maybe he would be the type to jump out of the genie in the dark now because maybe you know her presence in his life has brought him to that point I don't know but I just wanted to double check well, and, and see what you thought in the close story.
0: To me it was such a Ron spooking up on Hermione in the after the end right after the war Yeah, you know like why on earth would you go to Tom Riddle's house and it's serious, and people are dying, and it's war, and and suddenly you're, Harry's like, I'm going to use my vampire voice.
2: And also, it's kind of like, you know, when he jumps out at her at the dark, yeah, it's kind of stupid because, you know, she's not going to know what a bad fake vampire accent sounds like. Yeah. You know, it's not like she's watched those movies. But also, you know, he is a character that, you know, he kind of has these... I want to call him like spastic moments, <laughs> where where he does he acts a lot more immaturely than you would think someone else at that age does. But it's a tension breaker. That's the way it feels to me. You know, they're in this serious situation. They're searching for something that could possibly kill them. You know, they've got this huge thing hanging over their heads. So what does Harry do? He wants to talk like Vlad the Impaler. You know, <laughs> it's just here's a, it's th- just kind of like a. You know, it's like a comic relief kind of thing, even if it's just for himself.
1: And here's an amusing moment, too. You know, essentially these kids have wands which can be used to fire off deadly spells or potentially lethal spells. Okay, if you're ever in a house with a guy with a gun, you don't jump out in the dark and yell boo at him. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's like, okay, you're jumping out to scare a girl. Okay, she's packing. You don't do that.
4: (laughs) Well, no, I mean, I say, between a wand and a gun. Is that a gun is used specifically for violence? Wands are used for that, but they're also used for everyday levitation and making water. I mean, I, it's so much an accessory. We're talking about Ginny Weasley. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm just <laughs> saying. Although, I'm in this situation, she's probably thinking more lethal spells than yeah. everyday spells.
1: Yeah. She's not gonna wash them or like you know like dishes. <laughs> <stuff like> <laughs> Okay. She's going to turn the spell on them that turns them into a woman like so many of the fine fanfics we've read over the years.
2: Oh, Don't, don't get us
1: started. Don't get us started. (laughs) Max breaking into Hive, so I'm going to move on a little bit. Chapter 25, Scars. And with this chapter, we return to Hogwarts and the Death Eaters are right behind the trio and they take cover. And I thought this is a great moment where... Harry need Harry and Ginny are separated from Ron and Hermione, and they realize they're never going to make it through the gate of the castle. And I just one very interesting plot development here is Hogwarts is the last you know stronghold of of the side of of the light, and it's you know the, the headquarters of the Order of the Phoenix. And there's no guards outside to tell anybody that there's you know like a horde of death Eaters. I, th- I found that uh, a little interesting. So one thing I thought was a really great plot device though was that melinda has harry use prongs as a way of relaying information to ron and hermione it's something that you see come up again later in the chapters and it's something that dumbledore did to hagrid in uh gobble the fire when they find barbie Crouch senior in the woods dumbledore relays to hagrid the fact that um you know that, that they need help so i thought that was great i Personally, You know, just as a reader, I would have been curious to have read that from Hermione's perspective. I'm curious how you actually relay the information. Is it just, you know, like Prongs darts over and like, you know, pulls Ron and Hermione in the direction of of Hogsmeade? I'm not sure how it works, but I was kind of curious about that. Um, There were a few little character moments here I thought were great, too, when we get to Hogsmeade um, and they go into Honeyduke's. You know, there's the old couple. Oh, this is probably their like first customer in two months since the old couple and the woman jumps <laughs> off the chair. And she's like, "Hell, children in the store!" Kids are here. And of course, they have to buy something. I love that. It's like when you go into a place and the person's so happy to see you, you have to buy something. And they're literally being chased by Death Eaters, and they have to stop to buy something. I just thought that was uh, a really funny moment. And then um, as they get to uh, Hogwarts, you know, they can't get in because. Because everything has been sealed, I like that they bring Dobby in and Dobby, of course, will let Harry Potter and his wheezy through and and Dobby lets them into the <laughs> castle. So I just thought that those two plot mo- those two plot devices felt uh you know really fun and they and they did seem natural, although the fact that you know the castle is flooded with horrors, and none of them realize there are death either outside the school. I found to be a little uh, bit of a plot hole right there
2: well here's the thing that I kind of thought about. When I read that, it does seem to be kind of like a big plot hole. But I think the point of it is, you know, when the Death Eaters come to attack Hogwarts, they're not just going to walk up and ring the doorbell. You know, they're going to come with... <laughs> you
1: know, no, I'm sorry. In the last episode, I was making fun of the fact that um, that Percy Weasley rings the doorbell at Grimmauld Place. And since then, I have found out that Grimmauld Place does have a doorbell. It's an order clinic. Yeah. So I apologize. Well, I could have used you last week. I'm making fun of the fact that Melinda puts a doorbell on there. And I was joking about the fact that Snape and the Death Eaters would sneak up and ring the doorbell and the order would let them in because really who expects the Death Eaters to come up and ring the doorbells? So I just thought that was funny.
2: Right. So. Exactly. I mean, no, the Death Eaters are not going to just walk up to Hogwarts and, and ring the bell and wait patiently to be let inside. You know, if they, if they attack They're going to come out with their wands lit, you know, they're going to be shouting curses and trying to pull the wards down. And so in that sense, it's really not necessary to have a guard standing there because obviously if there's going to be an attack of some kind, there's going to be warning since these Death Eaters aren't, you know, firing at the school I don't know. There would any reason. Well, they get
1: to the infirmary and Harry tells mad constant vigilance Moody that there are death eaters outside the school. And he's like, I'll get the oars down there right away. I'm like, if you had a guy looking out the window, he probably could have told you what Harry just told you, you know, considering yes, the fact but, that, you know,
2: I, the, I Moody was also getting his Mac on. So, <laughs> <you know?
1: laughs> I was just going to say, if Moody, you know, was being constantly vigilant in other areas, you know, he may have seen the fact that, you know, humanity is about to fall to Voldemort, but, um, I, I did really like Ginny's line there, though. About you have lipstick, you know, right there. It reminded me of almost Hermione in the first uh, in the first book. You have dirt on your face. Did you know that? Yeah.
0: Well, I just liked how much how I think it was Hermione that was like, I can't even look at him. How did you even? <laughs> she was so embarrassed by it. She's such a little prude. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Hermione, well, because obviously- it's kind of like it's kind of like you know. If you think about Mad-Eye Moody, if I mean, especially from what we know of him in canon and, and what he looks like and his demeanor and things like that, you know, he doesn't really strike you as the Wine and Roses type, you know? And <laughs> but, especially, but chicks but dig scars. True. But they don't dig, you know, pieces missing from your face.
1: That's fair. Now, do chicks actually yeah. dig scars? Is that true? I've heard that. Do you find yourself attracted to people who are heavily scarred?
2: I don't, actually. Rena? Sorry. Well, I mean, it depends on on the scar. You know, like, oh, I burned myself on the iron. That's not you exactly... You like an acne scar. I don't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. No. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you slayed a dragon or, you know, stuff like that it might be a little more impressive than I cut myself with a knife slicing a tomato, <laughs>
1: you know? <laughs> Jen jumps you in the middle of, like... The- <laughs> The yeah,
2: I, I mean, I've got scars everywhere,
0: and I just don't find them attractive, so I don't know.
1: You got them I all trying to, like, wade yourself home through the waters of, of
0: I know. With my chaotic life, it's amazing, uh, uh, Mac, in my opinion. Mac, do you have scars
1: okay. that our listeners should hear about?
0: Sexy scars. Uh,
1: um,
4: yeah, I got I got, uh, I got a couple scars from cars, shrapnel, and pieces of metal going in my hands. Type about them on the oh. forum, you know. I'll, I'll do that. Yeah. I'll... I, know,
1: I know you have a girlfriend, but, you know, why not leave them yeah, br- wanting more?
4: Bring them onto the forum. You guys come visit us, potterfickforums.com. I'll tell you all about my scars. There you go. This is for real. <laughs>
2: okay, so one of the things I, w- I want to back you up, Ryan, because you kind of, like, powered through the first half of this entire show. <laughs> like, huh? It like It's like, good lord, calm down.
1: <laughs> and then Harry and Ginny lived happily ever after. What did the rest <laughs> yeah. of you think?
2: I will, I will say that it's kind of. <laughs> Candy store, <laughs> yeah. Uh. Candy store. Now, um, I will say that it's it's just interesting to read this now because some people, you know, they have good ideas and they have good concepts, but they they don't have a sense of reality. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm pretty sure that Harry can't fly, like flap his arms and fly. I don't think that's possible. So don't put it in your story. So some you people know? like
1: make it so he gets that, or do they just assume from day one Harry can fly?
2: They just assume from day one that he can fly.
1: Are you serious? (laughs) Yeah.
2: Well, In a few
0: stories I've read, it's
2: like Mage Harry,
0: and he can make himself levitate. It's more like that than actual, like, Superman flying. Right. This is like
2: Superman flying. This is like... (laughs) (laughs) It's like... Harry wakes up one morning and all of a sudden he's, you know, tall and buff and his hair is laying down and he's well endowed Spider-Man and he can fly that. and he can, you know, sing and he can play the guitar and you know, it's and just the piano. like, yeah, exactly it's like, okay, let's go back to canon Let's look at these characters and say, hmm, does it ever mention anything anywhere about Harry having a guitar? No. We don't see him get a guitar anywhere at Hogwarts. I doubt the Dursleys would give him one. And, and even within the wizarding community, I'm pretty sure you still have to learn things. Otherwise, they would just, you know, poke your head and then you'd have all of your knowledge and you wouldn't have to go to class, you know? Anyway, I do think one of the things that's funny is you know, Harry's like, I'm not very good at these spells, meaning for it to just kind of be a, like a passing thing. Mm-hmm. And Hermione's like, no, you need to just slow down and calm your heart rate down before using the spell. I read that in a medical journal. And it's like, Hermione, this is not the time nor the place. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know? Well, I thought it was an interesting. I did think that bit was a bit interesting. I mean, and the it, concept it, itself is
2: interesting. Is, but she could have gone into it a little bit more. I felt right. I just think that it's it's kind of one of those things like you're being you're being chased by an angry mob and suddenly you stop to read the phone book. You
3: know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah.
2: I mean
1: I mean know? I mean there is there there is a concerted effort on Melinda's part. I think it's fairly successful on two fronts to, to really portray Hermione as a flawed character number one and to portray her as a future healer. I've never read a fic where Hermione becomes a healer, although I sense that's where this fic's going. She's always, you know, the person to put, you know, because here's the thing, face it, Harry in this story is like Jen. Every chapter, something happens to the kid and he needs medical attention. And, love you, Jen. <laughs> Jen, I'm sorry.
3: Okay. Okay.
1: And, you know, and Hermione takes on the role as healer and Hermione takes on the role of, you know, someone who can, you know, calmly and scientifically you know find a way to blend you know people skills with you know research skills and you know do something with it, accomplish something with it and that always has been you know hermione she's really good with facts she's somewhat good with bedside manner she's very blunt she she, hermione is like a doctor and she's quirky and sometimes you know she she forgets you know that you know not everybody you know interprets the world through books. So I I thought that was kind of an interesting way for her character to go. Plus Hermione is always the character who just doesn't say, I'll I'll put it this way. Hermione is the blind date that comes on way too strong and she doesn't know what to say. And and that's one of my complaints, I think with the direction that Emma Watson's Hermione has taken in that she really comes across almost like Wonder Woman. Like she's like, but Rena said she almost needs like a cape, And that's not Hermione. Hermione's a very clumsy, you know, kind of dopey people person, skilled, but very brilliant person. And I think that Melinda really captures her a lot better than I think a lot of fan fiction authors, I think, at least do. I don't know. What do you guys think?
2: I would agree with that. I think too many people try and, and, you know, a a lot of people look past the fact that for a large part of the beginning of their friendship – you know, Hermione was just annoying. You know, she's not superwoman. Yes, she's ridiculously intelligent, but she can she can be a pain in the ass. And you know, you have to kind of capture that if you're going to give an idea of who this real character is. Yeah. But instead, so many people turn her and I mean, and granted, I am I'm a big follower of the Potter sues group and mm-hmm basically they, they go around and find the worst possible versions of all these characters and there have been a lot of Hermione sues lately that are just, I mean, they just blow your mind how incredibly asinine these characters are. But it's like, Hermione can fly and she has a unicorn Patronus and she's an Animagi who can turn into a dolphin and, you
1: know... <laughs> a dolphin Animagi in the Magi? No. That just seems helpful.
2: Yeah, I know. She she wears sparkly t-shirts and coal eyeliner. I <laughs> <Wow. laughs> you know. prefect's bathroom? Yeah, exactly. And, oh. you know, she wears converses. And, and she listens to Evanescence. You know, it's it's like, Sorry, okay. You know? Oh, God, I've read so many things where
0: Hermione, like, sings perfectly. Oh, you yeah, know, and, like, yeah. she always is
2: singing Evanescence. Always. Yeah, yeah, That's exactly. Hilarious. And,
1: you know... <laughs> Dobby from our forums is jumping up and down right now, I can tell.
2: Oh, and now that there's anything wrong with the music no, no, no. of Essence. it's just, <laughs> you know, first of all, people tend to forget, especially the people who write these kind of characters, tend to forget that this is not a current story. You know, the action in these stories is taking place almost a decade ago. You know, Amy Lee was in, like, this, you know, eighth grade when this story is taking place. Evanescence didn't exist, you know? So, no. You know, they don't... (laughs) So, no, people.
0: No, they make me laugh. I love those fics.
2: And... But anyway, that
0: but was. Completely- but Melinda
1: did good. I forgot where we were. Melinda did Melinda good. Did yes. really good. I thought
2: because she did capture the awkwardness of the character. She didn't try to make her into Superwoman.
1: Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing. She's always like. There's some points. I, I'm actually closing in on the end of this of the story. I I think I'm on chapter thirty-two. If that makes sense. yeah. I'm on thirty-two, and there's some scenes where you know I I literally want to bang you know Hermione's head against a desk because she's aggravating me so much, and that's good. If I want to hurt Hermione. It's she's being written very well because that's Hermione. Hermione is annoying. I mean, that is the character. She's you know you love her eighty percent of the time, and Harry couldn't live without her. But you know the other twenty percent of the time, you really just want you know just hit her over the head with one of those pull flimsy stick things that you know the Jeffersons use in that Fresh Prince episode. Like I really want to use those the noodles. The new no- I want a noodle and I want to smack Hermione with the noodle. Uh. <laughs> Stop you know,
2: really, that sounded almost kind of sexual, but I, anyway. I, I
1: got that after, and I was hoping no <laughs> catch it. But unfortunately, we have Jen in the podcast, and that just died.
2: The one thing: did Dobby seal the the thing, he the hole back? He did. Okay, I couldn't remember reading that, but I do have a tendency to like skip over large chunks of dialogue
1: sometimes. Yes, he did not leave the door I open. I you. No, It would be great if there's like a scene after that where like the old people from Honeydews come looking for like. You forgot your food.
2: <laughs> are you sure you don't want some treacle tart or some toast cookies? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have fresh pumpkin pasties. little people are cute. We we get to the letter that Ginny write or that Harry's writing to Ginny. That's a uh, kind of a love you dead now, bye. Kind of. <laughs> <laughs>
1: You know, I actually, well, I have two questions about the letter. My first question is, is this the final draft? If so, she can see through the line. And my second question, not even a question, I'm curious about the parts that Harry crosses out. He crosses out the part where he says, believe me, I know how you feel. And I'm assuming he crosses that out just because he doesn't want to kind of rub it in or he thinks it's somewhat awkward one thing he did cross out which I was not confused with but I I was curious about was he crosses out the part after he says I love you he crosses out and I always will and I know Gemma's crying incessantly at that point but I don't know if he crossed that out because he wants her to get on with her life and doesn't want her to feel as though he'll always be there and she's somewhat obligated to him or if he crosses that out because he knows he's gonna die and maybe he's not sure if he'll love her after he dies I'm just I'm not sure why he chose to cross that one particular line out I'm curious what you guys think
4: I took it as he didn't want to kind of promise future because the exact line is, wherever I am, I know that I miss you, Jenny, and I always will. And he crossed out, and I always will, because mm. he doesn't think he's going to be alive much longer and thus doesn't want to say, I'm always going to miss you because he's not going to be around much longer to miss her.
1: Yeah, okay, and it was missed and not love. I'm sorry about that. Um, I don't know if... I guess my question is, does Harry believe there's an afterlife where he'll be loving her or missing her from the other side i'm just
4: I'm just not I don't think that comes up. I think it's just a matter of he's not trying to think of what's going to happen after he's gone, okay.
1: I do really like that he leaves his cloak to Ginny because it's the last thing he has of his family. He knows that she'll use it well and take good care of it. And I love the part where he tells her he wants her to get on with her life and fall in love and have a family. And then crosses out the part where he basically says, as much as I hate for you to do that.
0: Yeah. I just hate it for him that he keeps telling himself he's going to die. It makes me sad.
1: He does have, you know, power of Voldemort in him. I mean...
0: That's, I know, but it's so depressing.
1: Well, it's Harry Potter. It's going to be depressing for a while. I hear it gets it better. It's so
2: true. That's so true. <laughs>
1: Jen's <laughs> it's like not the most be
2: a freaking cakewalk.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Jen's active and in... Jen's like I usually read the post Hogwarts fix. I'm not built for this.
2: You know, it's just time passing by, and and I, I do like the interaction between Draco and Dudley.
4: Oh, well, before that, we have. Oh, I
2: love that
4: revelation. What's the revelation? Um, about, he, he picks up the ring and he, he studies the oh, bolt crack. Scar.
1: Yeah. yeah. I did have a question about that. If the, if the crack that, you know, symbolizes Harry's scar is on all the Horcruxes, why did it take Voldemort until order of the Phoenix to realize Harry was a Horcrux? <laughs> like it changes the whole graveyard scene where, where Voldemort walks up and touches the scar and does his little like, you know, orgasmic thrill thing. Because wouldn't well, he be like, I've seen this before. It's on the cup. Like, it just... Like, I don't know. Well, does he know that's on the other things? <sighs> you would think he... Audemars pretty
0: stupid lately.
4: And they said it's pretty small. Like, he really had to look for it. And I... You know... No, actually, I that's
1: think... true. I'm trying to think of one because it's... I don't know if we noticed it on the book. Um, it, it was on, like, the inside of the ring. It was on, you know, the, the... We don't have the the locket anymore, but it was on the... um is on
4: Hufflepuff's cup. But, yeah, maybe it was too small for him to even realize.
3: Yeah, I that's mean, it's
4: possible that... Because but- didn't it say when they first noticed it, it looked like a small crack? Not not a lightning bolt, mm. but a, it looked like just a regular crack. And it was only <laughs> when they paid close attention to it, they realized it was that lightning bolt shape. Yeah,
1: that's true. Yeah. Okay. okay, that does make sense.
2: And I just... Well, the thing about Draco and Dudley having their little chat is... Um, honestly, I... I could see them being friends if if they were thrown into a situation like that, because they're both spoiled bullies, you know, mm-hmm. and and they would kind of be have that morbid fascination with each other. And um, although I really think that Draco would have considered himself so far above Dudley, it's not even funny. Um, and I do love that they're playing poker.
1: Draco's okay. using magic to cheat, and he's cheating. Yeah, Dudley's like, "There's no way you can have this many. <laughs> like, oh, you fine. can't
2: have two sets of three of a kind." <laughs> you
1: know? I, I was just waiting for the line where, like, there's a moment of silence, and Draco looks at Dudley, and Dudley looks at Draco, and then Dudley says, "I'm the chosen one."
2: Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh,
0: Dudley's so dumb. Kick him.
1: I love that when he walks up to Harry. I'm more powerful than you are. Shut up. <laughs> I I thought that was great. Um, In in a lot of the moments, you know, as we get to the end of the chapter is obviously searching the castle for the missing Horcrux that has, you know, Harry's scar on it, you know, have you seen the scar anywhere? And, you know, they do lay the groundwork for the for the friendship between uh, Draco and... And between um, Dudley, who I really believe, we said this a bit last week, are the same character, you know, as plot devices. You know, one is magical and one is not, but they they serve the same purpose, I think is the way she put it. And um, one thing I do appreciate also in this chapter, and it's something that I've been thinking about, you know, as I try and make the argument for... Um, Harry to be a Horcrux is the conversation from Chamber of Secrets, where Dumbledore says to Harry, you know, part of Voldemort went into you. You're a parcel tongue because he's a parcel tongue. And it really, you know, we, we talked a little bit earlier about some things in the story that didn't feel right to me. That felt very right. The fact that in book two, Joe would come out and tell us, you know, with a bullhorn, Harry and Voldemort have parts of each other and each other. And like, that is something that, you know, to have it come back in book seven, to have Harry be a horcrux, that would feel totally like Joe and feel totally natural. So I really did appreciate that moment in here. Just, you know, calling that one scene up, you know, I I thought that added a lot of weight to the storyline. and made it feel very, very natural.
2: One thing I really do like is that, the thing Ron thinks about the tiara is that the pattern looks like spiders. <laughs> <laughs> Just, yeah. Because that 80. is something that is something that the young Ron, like the first time he saw it, that's something he would pick up on. Those lines look like spiders. <laughs> you
1: know. Yeah. It's like, however far you've come, how, you know, as much as these characters have grown, Harry smooth with the ladies, everything's happened. Ron is still like, is that a spider? I think I started together, and then of
2: course, you know, Ron is the one who puts the tiara on his head because Fred and George used to make him wear Auntie Muriel's
1: all the time.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, to be the little brother!
1: And it doesn't work. And I love Ginny. You know, like I think it was Ginny or Hermione is is as wonderful as you look in the tiara. I think a woman needs to wear it.
2: You do look frightfully cute. I love that.
0: I thought it was so interesting that, again, Jenny is the one that that proves useful and purposeful. You know, like, I don't know how many times in the story she sort of is important, and they weren't going to bring her.
1: Ron's like, take me. I've never failed yet. Cut to, like, a montage of Ron being carried fireman style and like, you know, four of the last six books, and yeah.
0: Yeah, Yeah, Jenny's sort of put up with everything. Poor thing.
1: I'm picturing Ron eating slugs. You know, Ron getting attacked by a chess piece. Ron getting attacked by Sirius. Ron getting attacked by a squid or a brain or whatever that thing was. He did okay in Half-Blood Prince, I think. Oh, no, nope, sorry. Sorry, he got poisoned. Yeah, Ron, you don't bring him with you, like, to a crisis. Ron's the guy that kind of passes out and throws yeah. up in a plastic bag.
0: And see, I don't know. When, when, Harry started, when Harry started like convulsing, Ron is the one that rushed down there and held him still. He has True. his moments he has his lovely moments.
2: There was one other little thing that jumped out at me. It sticks out to me because, you know, I work in hospitals and I work around you know the medical field, but when they've had seizures, the two times that there have been seizures, they say she's seizing or he's seizing and that's you know, most people wouldn't say it like that. They would say she's having a seizure. You know, just saying she's seizing is something that's
1: you think it's pretty, British? You think it's a British way of saying it?
2: It's possible, but I don't know. Amy, it it sounds like, like
4: someone who's who's heard one too many medical shows like instead of saying he's having right. a heart attack saying he's coding.
2: Right.
1: Amy, I mean, Amy, that's kind of what. Our resident Brit, write in and tell us if if that's the proper use of seizing. No, I'm curious. And I love the choice at the end of the chapter. I love the fact that, you know, another thing that feels completely natural Voldemort would devise the Horcrux to have to be, you know, worn by, you know, quote unquote, the hero's mate. You'd have to sacrifice your mate, you know, to the Horcrux. Well, sometimes you have <laughs> these huge dogs that are, like, afraid of, like, the little cat, but they could seriously take the cat. Yeah. All right, so the chapter ends, and I, I really love the fact that you know between th- here's the thing, and I've said this before, I really think that the series is going to end. It's almost like a bookend to the tasks at the end of *Philosopher's Stone*. I really believe that Harry, Ron, and Hermione will have to go through a series of of trials to get to the Horcruxes, and I believe at one point Ron will be injured or Ron will sacrifice himself in some way, and Hermione. Will have to leave Harry behind and they're going to have, or maybe it'll be Ron, but they'll have a scene similar to at the end of Philosopher's Stone where they tell Harry, you can do this. You know, we've been with you and we got you through the hard stuff, but now you, you can do this. We have faith in anyway, you. I really believe that's something that's going to happen. And when you look at the scene, you have the three characters. You have Harry, who's too important. He can't, you know, wear the tiara, nor would it probably even work on him. Ron's a guy, won't work on him. So you have Hermione and you have Ginny it can 't be Hermione because Hermione's the only one who knows what to do in a crisis, so if something happens, you need Hermione to be all right, and the only one left is Ginny who is the last person that Harry wants to put in danger, so that felt natural that Ginny would be the one to wear it. I mean, you really have to you, you, you need to give the reader a good excuse why it's always you know Ginny who you know is the person putting herself out there. and I thought that felt very natural
4: the The one thing that bothered me about that was just I have trouble seeing. Voldemort make a gender specific Horcrux, because even though it's a tiara and it should be worn by a girl, uh, there would never be a, a girl in Voldemort's life. There would never be, you know, a, a female Death Eater to raise high enough, to, you know, be that second side. I mean, I just never would see him doing anything that would affect females only. I just thought that was kind of
2: it. It means that there can't just be one person tracking all these things down it means that there has to be somebody else involved. Kind of like how, you know, Harry's magic didn't trigger when they went to the cave because he was underage, you know. So that was a way they could get through that. But, you know, you had to do the blood sacrifice to get into the cave. And so, you know, it was something that I don't think I'm making any sense, am I?
1: No, I think you are. I mean, you know, Mac, that raises a really good point because here's my question all along. I understand that that Voldemort... You know, wants Horcruxes to extend his life. I understand that he is a very vain person and wants to humiliate his enemies with his choice of Horcruxes. But it almost seems like he's—and this is what I believe Melinda's doing. I just want to bring it out there and make sure you all agree on it. He, like, and we've said this before. He could have taken the Horcruxes and hid them so well that no one would have ever found them. But he's putting them in places that where it's where obviously, as the trio shows, you can deduce where these things are. And he almost seems like he's baiting people, like, come and get me. I mean, because here's the thing, you know, in this in this scene and going into the next chapter, you have the tiara that can only be d- be destroyed by having, you know, the snake be defeated by the spider. And you have to get the tiara to the spider or else it won't work. You know, the cup, the Hufflepuff cup with only... Be able to be destroyed by the dragon that's right near it. You know, the locket could only be destroyed by the Inferi. Now, if if, if you're Voldemort and you want to live forever, and the only way to destroy that locket is by Inferi, you're not going to keep the locket in the room with the Inferi. You're going to put the locket on the other end of the planet, nowhere near the Inferi. You're going to put it in the J C Penny from after the end. You're going to hide this thing. He's almost making it like you know, like the Triwizard Tournament. If you if you can pass you know these six or seven challenges, you can defeat Voldemort that it has to be that he's baiting people that, you know, I'm leaving you everything right out in the open and you just can't do it because otherwise I I see no reason why he's doing it in that way. I'm, I think it's the same point here now with you. And the reason I think that, you know, he, he puts the tiara, you know, in a position where it can only be worn by a woman is like it said in the story, you as the guy going after, the Horcruxes have to sacrifice your companion, your female companion, your mate. And, you know, it implies that Voldemort, you know, is trying to allow a way to him if you're willing to pay the price. And that's the part that, you know, would confuse me unless he's just being incredibly vain. That makes sense.
2: We've seen in several instances here that Voldemort has really overestimated his own brilliance. Mm -hmm. You know, he's he didn't consider underage magic worthy enough to trigger the the inferiority at the cave so it's it's possible that in his own arrogance he didn't think anyone would put the pieces together as we've seen in canon there aren't very many people that know about horcruxes so it's possible that he just figured nobody else is going to know about this i don't have to do anything special in fact you know what I'll leave the clues right out here in the open, and you know what? No one else is going to figure it out. Yeah. Well, it's pride.
4: I mean, that's just, you know, he's just Mm -hmm. filled with pride. You know, I can do this and be somewhat open about it, and anyone, you know, a 17-year-old boy and his friends can figure it out. Anyone should be able to figure it out, and they still can't do anything about it.
1: Yeah, that's true. I actually can buy into that, because Voldemort's just the type of monologuing boob that would, you know, (laughs) underestimate people like that.
4: Well, know. it's it's better than Voldemort wearing all of his Horcruxes, you know, because I can't see him showing up with the ring and the locket. The tiara <laughs> Can you on. imagine that? And being like, you know, check out my Horcruxes. bling. out.
1: What would yeah. that? What would that be like? That would be like he'd have the ring on. He'd have the cup in his hand. He'd have the tiara on his head. He'd lock it around his neck. Lock it around his neck. He would. He would look like the world's best pimp.
2: Yeah, I know exactly.
0: I really like that the snake was poisoning her. I've decided. The more I think about it, the more I like it. And that I liked that the the small glimpse back to Canon for the Bizor Bezor? Bezor? Bezor. Bezor? I can't Beezer. say it. Whatever it's called.
1: Um Rina got juxtaposed think... earlier, so you can say bezor. that's fine.
0: Is it really bizarre? What Beezer. juxtapose is a word?
1: Oh, you uh, you honestly don't listen to the show, do you?
0: This is where, to me, where the chapter started, where the story really like picked up again. and really started getting into it. I liked that Harry uses him, you know, the the huge shield, and I like that how he like scoops Jenny into his. I like all the romantic stuff, and he doesn't let anybody else touch her, or hold her, you know, and he doesn't care about his own pro, his own cuts and stuff because he's so concerned with her. I know that I get hurt a lot, and James. <laughs> and James- I guess has gotten used to it and so now when I get hurt he just kinda glances over and like raises an eyebrow and then goes back to the television or whatever. Like <laughs> oh, when nice. he used to be real rom- I know, he used to be real romantic about it. But um You've I get you know oversaturated
1: like, him with injuries.
0: It's an over it's an hourly thing, so <laughs> you know
1: <laughs> Have you been injured during the recording of this podcast?
0: No, but don't jinx it, not on wood.
1: Okay. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely that sense that Harry, he is a a very different guy than he obviously was when he was 12 years old. And obviously, you know, you have the scene where Harry, you know, speaking Parcel Mouth, is able to get the snake away from Ginny and is able to, uh, you you know, turn the snake against the spy there and is able to, you know, destroy the Horcrux and they all get back to Hogwarts. And Harry is not, he is... Not like we've ever seen him before. And he he knows that if Ginny dies, Hope dies with Ginny. And he knows his future will die. And Harry, you know, doesn't have much of a future anyway. So the fact that, you know, the, the, the one thing left, you know, with everything going on in his life and with everything he knows, the, the one thing that keeps him going, it's about to die. And he knows he's not going to let that happen. And he really, you see him take charge. And we were talking... Uh, Last week and the week before about, you know, the scene in Diagon Alley when he takes charge of the uh, people in the cafe and, you know, becomes like a, you know, battlefield general. And that was really people putting their faith into Harry. And this is really the point where you see Harry take charge on his own and make that decision that he is not going to allow Ginny to die. And I think that's a real turning point for the character and i really do like that i thought that was a really just that that was a very strong moment for the character that he's going to grab his potions book and he's going to find the way out of this that no one else is thinking of
2: the one thing that i really do like about the start of this chapter when hermione says you know harry you need to speak to the snake and make it let go of her she reminds him that he has to speak parcel tongue And that he has the ability to do it. And it reminds me of all the way back in the very first book when they go down um, the trap door and Mm -hmm. they're on the devil's snare. In the book, Hermione is like, if only we had a fire. If only we had matches. And Harry has to go, you're a witch. Conjure it. He has to remind her in that situation that she has the ability to to fix the situation. She just needs to think. And that's exactly what she's doing here. It's the opposite of it. She has to remind him, um, hello? Use your little snaky-talky thing and and fix this. (laughs) Your snaky-talky thing.
4: To to be fair, (laughs) though... I I really... To be fair, in the first book, she uses that flame in, like, every chapter. And how often does Harry get to use his parcel tongue? Well, I think if you're one of, like,
1: three people on the planet that can talk to snakes and you, you, you really need to talk to a snake or else your girlfriend's going to die, you'd hope it would come to you that I'm one of the three people on the planet that can do this. I mean, could you imagine if, like, Ginny died and then Harry was like, oh, crap, I could have talked to the thing. I mean, talk about guilt. But, um... Yeah, it, it's like the scene we saw earlier when you know they're trying to re- they're trying to um, get the, the the Hufflepuff cup, and you know Ron and Hermione are on fire, and Harry has a wand in his hand and is like looking around for a fire extinguisher. I mean, these are moments that keep kind of coming up over and over again. But yeah, I, I definitely, I definitely saw the uh, the comparison that you were making there to that. I thought that was. Yeah, and, and uh, here's the thing. It's like Harry says, let go. We mean you no harm, and the snake just backs off.
2: No, she's, he says she's not a threat to you.
1: I was kidding. I knew that wasn't verbatim.
2: <laughs> well, no, what I'm saying is the reason that he lets the snake just lets go is because Ginny isn't the real threat here.
1: That's true, too. And then what does Harry do to his new friend? He flings it at the, the, at the spider, you know, and it doesn't work out well for the snake, even though the snake is a tiara. Which you know,
2: No, he banishes the draperies behind the spider and then he kind of yeah, he does really does he does the blasting hex. I guess I didn't see that. Okay. You see what I want to know is, okay, why is there an invisible spider? Why is it invisible? Why not? I guess it just seemed like kind of overkill to me in this instance. It's like yeah, let's have a giant spider. No, wait. Let's have an invisible <laughs> giant
1: spider. You know? They were transported to an ice castle in the middle of the Forbidden Forest. I mean, I think it's kind of out there, but I don't know. Well, here's the question. Well,
2: yes, but, I mean, I think a giant spider would have been scary enough, and let's just make it invisible. What, for kicks?
1: Uh, I mean, they, I
4: mean, they've They've already done the giant spider thing, and, you know, this is the last... Horcrux, aside from Harry. So they can kind of step it up a notch. We've already done Aragog. Now we have to do Aragog plus Invisibility just to give yeah. it that little extra oomph.
1: My question is, has there been literally an ice castle in the Forbidden Forest all this time?
2: It wouldn't surprise me.
4: That's what I got from reading, was that it's been there the whole time. The spider must be hungry.
2: Well, I mean, <laughs> come on. We, we don't ever really venture that much into the Forbidden Forest. I mean, we kind of take little... Uh, sojourns into it, but we don't really know what's in there. I mean, Disneyland could be in there for all we know. <laughs> you
1: know, <laughs> it's not- like you ever watch Gilligan's Island? The movies where like they find out there's like a spa on the island, and there's you know like the World War II plane. The Forbidden Forest is kind of like Gilligan's Island. Whatever plot device you need, if you just just in a little bit deeper, you'll find it. Exactly. The Amish live there. It's it's a wonderful place to raise a family. The Forbidden Forest. Yeah. Well, here's one question I have. If you look at the um, of the book covers that came out for Deathly Hallows, you have one cover that has Harry in the Colosseum, which, if you'll remember, that's where we found the Hufflepuff Cup. And there's one, I believe it's the back cover of the children's UK edition, where Harry, Ron, and Hermione are near like an ice castle. And all I have to say is,
4: ooh, I mean, it's just it's it's it's. Like these ideas are not, you know, we've never read about an ice castle or a colosseum before in canon. So, it's it's like a completely new and original idea. You know, it's not like when she references the Forbidden Forest or or, you know uh, Hogsmeade. These are things that we've never heard about. So, for them to come up on both the cover and in this story, I I just kind of got to think that's a little bit of a coincidence. Because she didn't get these ideas from canon, I don't think, because they haven't come up before.
1: Wouldn't it be funny if like Melinda guessed like eighty percent of the book?
4: Yeah, I think no, that would be. A no, because I want to be surprised. I've already read this. That means I've read eighty percent of.
0: Yeah, I'll be. And I don't like some of the. I, I really want Deathly Hallows to go different routes in some places.
1: Oh, that Harry's not a Horcrux, so. No, actually, you said that though. I don't know where Joe ever said that though. We were trying to figure no, that out. No, I've
0: person. read it too. An interview with her, and she said read that it. it absolutely was I not read. a Horcrux.
1: I read it. Okay, because a lot of us were trying to figure that out. I've never found that. I'm actually going to Google it because I was actually I spent like half an hour one day trying to find that. She said that something wasn't a Horcrux, but I didn't think it was Harry.
2: No, I'm 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 pretty sure there was one place where she said specifically that Harry himself was not a Horcrux. At some point in the story, Melinda references uh, when she was writing it. She referenced at some point that Joe came out and said Harry wasn't going to be a Horcrux, but she was going to go with it for the story. Oh anyway. no, because she
1: she was actually one of the ones who said I want to know where where Renegat got that because I never found that.
0: I'm almost i I'm, I'm looking really quickly. I know that I can find it in like two seconds.
2: I, again, I mean, you know, Hermione's comment has obviously jolted Harry to remember things because then he remembers that snakes and spiders hate each other. So maybe I can, you know, fix this so that they're against each other. And so then we get to see the uh spider-snake battle, which kind of, again, I mean, it surprises me because it's an invisible spider.
0: Invisible spider and the crown turns... I didn't really get this the crown turning into a snake thing.
2: I didn't either but I I I really shouldn't think that is more easy to swallow than invisible spider
1: you know no invisible spider I could handle I think I think a a hat turning or tiara turning into a snake it was a little and being transported into you know the the ice castle you know next to Disney World. I mean, I, don't know. I think I think it was definitely a very um, there was a sci fi twist to this part of the chapter. I think invisible spiders. You know, we can probably take at that point.
2: So the spider and snake battle to the death of the horcrux. And then the ice castle collapses. So, so much for ice castle and the Forbidden Forest.
1: No, it didn't collapse then, did it? Because didn't Harry go back to it later when he needed to get the uh, the spider venom? Uh,
2: Yeah, he went back in. I, I thought it said the structure entirely collapsed. Yeah, Harry ran toward his friends using his own body to cover them. He strengthened the shield around them, completely blocking them from the falling debris until the structure had entirely collapsed. Okay,
4: my fault. No, no, no but I know what you're saying, because later when goes, they're talking about healing the venom from the snake, they said the spider's uh, venom was the only thing effective against the snake. So in order to cure Ginny, we need the spider's venom, and we so had to right. go back, go back to the spider. So they had just maybe they've
1: had to find the corpse of the spider in you know amongst the debris from the fallen uh, castle.
4: Right.
2: Harry sees fear in Hermione's eyes when she says something about the shield because it was that powerful. So we've established that the the ice castle did fall down, you know, like London Bridge. And, um, anyway, sorry.
1: <laughs> now I'm humming the song in my head. Thank you very much.
2: London Bridge is falling down.
1: Fall right down,
2: falling. In this case, I suppose it would be Weird Ice Castle is falling down. Falling down, falling down. Weird Ice Castle is falling down. <laughs> Terrible. Oh, I'm not a spider. Okay. I
1: think we should be like on probation and not <laughs> allow singing on this podcast for like three weeks.
2: Anyway, so they, you know, haul it back to the school and you know, bust Jimmy, Jenny up into the emergency
1: room. Emergency room. <laughs> Go with it. Go with it. Go He's with it. Into
2: the, the hospital wing, and they're like, "Oh my God, she's like totally poisoned." <laughs>
0: Harry's trying
1: to figure out what her health insurance paperwork and her broccoli, Right, exactly.
3: Oh,
2: no,
0: he's so romantic here. Yes. He's like, no, Madam Pumphrey, you can't get to her. I must be here.
2: Okay, here's the thing. If this was happening in real life, this is what would happen. They would rush Ginny in, to the emergency room and be like oh my god she's like totally poisoned and they'd be like alright fill out this form and give me your driver's license and let me take her fingerprints and they'd go and, and process all the paperwork and then they'd sit down on a chair and be like okay when was her last menstrual period does she have any threat allergies he just spoke on a regular
1: and Harry would right. like, hear like when was your I last menstrual like- period and he would turn 17 shades of red <laughs> right. and not be able to talk
2: but he's like, look, she's like totally poisoned. Can we get her some medicine? And we're like, yeah, fine. But first we need to know, does she, she, she ever ever have had the poison? chicken pox? <laughs> <You know? laughs> you know? Is she up
0: to date on her immunizations? <laughs> <You know?
1: laughs> yes. Is she currently sexually active? At which point right, Molly exactly. would glare yes. at Harry.
0: sure?
2: <laughs> yes. Really? You know, and then they would they would take her back to a room where somebody would take her blood pressure and her temperature and
0: temperature, yes.
2: And like, you know, just... and then she'd sit on a bed for four hours. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, Harry is sitting next to her. Oh my God, she's like totally poisoned. <laughs> like freaking out. Oh okay, God, that was beautiful.
1: Rin, I miss
2: you. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> Anyway. Oh. so And then the doctor
1: like, comes in and says, what happened to her? The snake oh God, and the giant like totally spider. She was, a, she was wearing a tiara. And the tiara turned into a snake and it hit her. And then we flew away from the ice castle on the brooms that we made out of nowhere. And then Harry would get a psychopath.
2: Right, exactly. <laughs> no, they would just think he was on meth or something. Yeah, why don't we come have you come in the next room? <laughs> no, I won't leave her. Won't leave her. She's totally but, the- <laughs> Anyway. <laughs> so so they get Jenny taken care of and uh and Ron runs off to tell Mummy about what's going on, which is good because you know
1: There's a conversation you'd like to see. Our sister's been attacked by the ice prince. <laughs> like what? <laughs> like <laughs>
2: Our sister had a run-in with a snake and a giant spider, a giant invisible spider, inside an ice castle in the Forbidden Forest. Come quick! <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. So then we have the then we have you know Dumbledore's portrait, you know refer the case to his brother. And here's the thing: I'm a huge, huge, ginormous fan of uh, Abra Fourth Dumbledore from Curse of the Damned. I think he was one of the funniest uh fan fiction characters I've read in a long time. He's one of those characters kind of like Rose Cape Brown that kind of sticks with you even though, you know, they're the creation of a of a fanfic author, you know, for one of many fan fictions. It's just such a great realized character. I'm not really a huge fan of the of the, of of the new Dumbledore, the new Aberforth as much. I think one thing I definitely like about him is he's very snarky. He's kind of like Renna but old and like a guy Right, exactly. (laughs) And I I really like, you know, the fact that, you know, and I even, I I liked the moment enough because it just felt natural enough that I actually jotted it down um, in my notes here. It's the moment where, you know, McGonagall and Aberforth come flying out of the infirmary and she's furious and and he's defensive and she's screaming and what you find that happens is that, you know, Dumbledore referred... Abe to come take a look at the situation... ...because he's familiar with dark arts... ...and might know something... ...and he essentially says that Ginny's going to die... ...right in front of Molly... ...and the and the Weasleys are all upset... ...and Aberforth is probably telling them to shut up and stop whining... ...and he's going to do the best he can... ...but it doesn't look good... ...and that's what prompts Harry to go out... ...and, you know, return to the Ice Castle... ...so hopefully he left a trail of Cheez-Its to follow... And (laughs) he he needs to go back and find the corpse of the dead spider. And he needs to extract some of the spider's venom to, you know, because spiders and because uh, snakes are, you know, essentially bitter enemies, you know, that they're able to use the venom from the spider to destroy the the snake venom.
0: It's really lucky that she didn't just like double die (laughs) from spider venom and snake venom.
1: Wouldn't you know, that be great if, it, was, as they're yeah, injecting it, so. she looks like she's getting better, and as they inject it, she dies? No! That would be tragic. That would be awful.
0: Serve 'em rot. Right. Doctors <laughs> don't do that. And how did they get the venom out of the spider?
2: Well, I'm I'm assuming it's the same way that you milk venom from a snake. I don't well, personally know how to. Do
0: it's
4: it. the same way that Slughorn. He took the little jars, and you basically you press the jar into the the spider fang, and the the venom will milk out into the jar and Their logic, which they say is they learned in potions last year Golpe's law, which is basically about blending potions or blending poisons to cancel each other out, and that's what they're doing is they're blending snake venom and spider venom not to double the power of the venom but to cancel the venom powers out i'm with well, Matt. color
0: me impressed.
4: <laughs> So I, I just killed that conversation. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's completely fine. But, I, I, but that's. I just want to say
1: I just I did think it was very. It, it felt very natural the fact that you know we find out in the second book that spiders and snakes are blood enemies and they are you know bitter rivals and then that comes back to play in this what would be the seventh book and that's something that we're able to use now six books later to save Jenny's life that felt very natural and that was one of the moments that I think Melinda was able to very nicely craft mm-hmm. into the story.
4: The past three chapters that we've done are really, there isn't a whole lot of discussion or debate to have because, you know, what we've been talking about, we've all been kind of agreeing with everything that we've said. It's pretty straightforward stuff, all leading us up to the end of the fic. I mean, really, the only big thing that's happened in these past three chapters is getting that last horcrux. And well, generally. and we know
0: that that Snape is actually really, really bad. You know, yeah, yeah, but we can't. We,
4: fear that, we fear that anyways.
0: I didn't. I was hoping he would be. He, it was an accident.
1: It, it was an accident.
0: Well, you know, I was it, hoping it was a um, plane you know,
1: accidentally <laughs> happened to kill Dumbledore. He backed over him with his car <laughs> in the way. to work. <laughs> oh my god! Help! us, here. <laughs> <laughs> Starts giving like chest compressions. Oh no! <laughs> it was an accident. I killed Oops. Grandpa. One thing to close the chapter off with, because I think this is one of the key points, you know, like Max said, I don't think there's a lot of controversy in the chapters that we've read so far, but I do think that there's two things that we see harry take on he becomes a leader not because people want him to be but because he finds that strength in himself he saves Ginny's life it wasn't no one april fourth dumbledore and you know dumbledore's portrait which essentially is the embodiment of albus and you know madam pomfrey even though she's probably thinking about mad eye and isn't thinking clearly no one knows how to fix jenny and you know Harry remembers something from potions that would do it. And obviously if Snape were there, he would have thought of something and I'm not sure where slughorn is, but, um, slughorn really isn't around very much. Is he slughorn ran for his life?
0: I don't like him. Yeah.
1: So slughorn ran for it. So slughorn's not around. And the second thing is that, you know, not only does Harry become a leader, Harry decides he's going to live, you know, it's something that you see, uh, very much at the end of the chapter when Harry is sitting at Ginny's bedside and he, he knows she's going to make it and he essentially tells Jenny, I'm going to hang on for both of us. And if Ginny promised to survive and spend the rest of her life with Harry, she'd better damn well do it. And he promises he'll stick around too if she does. And it's it's the moment where you know essentially all of Ginny's prodding and pushing and molding over the course of the past you know year and a half of their lives together has finally taken its toll And you really see Harry make the conscious choice that he isn't going to leave Ginny behind. Whereas, you know, even earlier, you know, this chapter, the last chapter, you know, previous chapters, Harry would have walked away in a minute and would have hated doing it. But he would have done that, you know, to give Ginny, you know, a better life. Even look at the letter he just wrote to her. He wrote her a letter saying, you know, go off and get married and be happy. He would not write that letter now. And I think that's very important. And just one other thing, I really love the fact that when Hermione is watching Harry... You know, sitting at Jenny's bedside, even Hermione knows if Jenny dies, Harry will lose hope. And it's something I said, you know, a couple podcasts ago. Jenny in this fic represents hope.
2: I do think it's really funny. Ron points out while they're all waiting outside of the infirmary, he's like, dude, we've totally done this for you so many times. It's about damn time you figured out how it feels.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Ron has a chair that's like molded to his body because he's been sitting in this chair for seven years, like waiting for Harry to come up.
2: Right, exactly. I just i I thought that was very funny.
1: And speaking of very funny, as the next chapter begins, Molly will not let Jenny leave the hospital wing until she gets a family photo. It it just amaze anyone else that, like you know, the 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 battle is almost lost, hope has almost you know been extinguished. The other they're they're held up inside of Hogwarts, and the Wizarding world has fallen, and Molly is still Molly.
2: I think that's good. It's kind of it's kind of similar to, you know, the way they were fighting, like, teenagers a couple of chapters back. It's just, you know, it's a little thing about these people that has not changed due to the war.
1: Yeah, I almost wonder if there's, like, even too much of that. I, I, it seems like everyone's life goes on as normal in Hogwarts. And it, I feel as though we're too isolated from what's going on in the Wizarding World. It's not like, you know, the Death Eaters have surrounded the gates, but they can't get in. It's, like, literally, like, everyone forgot about them, which to me seems a little... Odd,
0: you know, I don't know what it is about things like Molly wanting a family picture and uh, that are so normal. why it makes me go, huh? like why it makes me lose what the magical feel about the story. Maybe it's because it's so real because my family's very much like that. When everybody gets together, it's all about if we where we're gonna do the picture but right. so so I don't know, but for me, waiting for Jenny to come to get out of the hospital and, and have her come home and and them trying to do the family picture i don't it just didn't seem very important well, with what's going on and and again, I felt that the story is stopping for ages to do something completely unnecessary and not towards any plot goal.
1: Well, let me do this, too. I'm going to play devil's advocate, even though I'm going against my own point from a second ago. You know, Harry Potter is not a story about magic. It's a story about regular people who, you know, you yes to use magic, and magic is a great window dressing, but magic never really solves anything, and magic never really, you know, does a lot of damage. You know, it, it, it's a story about choices and love and family and decisions, and when you think about it, you know the Weasleys—you know, magic aside—are your typical, you know, down-to-earth, loving, big family who all get on each other's nerves and all drive each other crazy, but would all die for each other. And so, so, so that's how I view the family. The other thing too is, you know, we never get any—you know—scenes from the story. To my knowledge, I haven't finished the last chapter. We don't get anything from Molly's perspective. But when you stop to think about it, you know think of molly your, your son is dead you know the rest of your family is holed up inside of hogwarts and you know the death eaters are outside and all hope is lost if you're molly you're going to be as normal as you can be because you know that people are looking to you and if you wake out everyone's going to wake out so i'm actually curious if when melinda wrote this if she was consciously over emphasizing molly's character traits because molly herself would be doing that and she'd really be you know trying to keep everybody calm and keep everybody from thinking about it
0: Maybe, and it there's no there's nothing to back that up.
1: That's no, true. That's not.
0: So I don't really accept that. I I don't know. It just felt kind of like the aunt. It didn't even feel like Molly or the mom. It felt like Molly the aunt came in and decided that we were going to have a small reunion, and and then the story will go on.
1: That's fair. Although I think if that wasn't in there, I'd be like, what's up with Molly? Molly's not making a big deal of it. I don't know.
4: It, it just kind of seems like a. a one last hurrah, you know, one chance to get everyone together before whatever's going to happen to end this all. Like, it's kind of like the last chance to get everyone together because I think everyone's got a sense that the war is not going well. Harry and Ginny and Hermione and Ron have been up to something to help end the war, but not everyone's really sure what's going on. You know, they have an idea but whatever they're doing, every time they come back with the, all these really serious injuries, mm-hmm. they're making progress. And, you know, it's it's happening so frequently. This is, what, the fourth time they showed up with serious injuries, third yeah, or fourth? Something like that, yeah. That Molly's kind of like, you know, we got to get people together while we still can. Because, you know, next time Harry might not come back or... Hermione not come, might not come back, or God forbid, Ron or, or Jenny might not come back. So, I mean, I think she's taking advantage of the opportunity while she can just because things are getting so much more dangerous.
1: Well, another thing, too, you know, this chapter is called Mathers of the Heart. It really could have been called, you know, The Eye Before the Storm. This is the chapter where, where you know, for one final time, the characters are allowed to pause and breathe because they're never going to get that chance again. You know, until, you know, the battle is over because everything picks up in the next two chapters. And you really see, you know, Molly being mom and, and you're trying to pull everyone together. And you have, the you know, the characters all pause and just reflect with each other, especially Ron and, you know, Hermione, especially Harry and Ginny. And, you know, as, you know, they go back to, you know, Gryffindor Tower, especially Dudley and uh, Harry. And we haven't really, we've made fun of Dudley and, and, and um. Draco, but we haven't really gotten into, you know, Dudley's character. And I, I felt it was kind of weirdly put into the scene, you know, in the ministry when Umbridge, you know, makes him the chosen one. But the more I've thought about it, the more that's classic Umbridge, to go after your enemy's strength, to go after Harry himself, you know, as the chosen one, and to replace him with someone who is weak, who you can control. It's always weird when you read, you know, the jerseys out of, you know, it's like the fish out of water scenes. The jerseys at Hogwarts or, you know, in Curse of the Dam, you know, the curses at the Burrow. And it, it it's just a weird uh placement and you don't get a lot of emphasis on, you know, Petunia and Vernon. They're off in the background kind of wigged out and, you know, there's reference to, you know, Petunia polishing the floor of her room like over and over again. But, you know, you. Dudley's kind of weird because you can play him one of two ways. He can be the evil, you know, bully kid that he was in the beginning or he, in this story, you know, is a wizard and, you know, he's looking at Hogwarts where he would have called home if he had different parents so he's obviously resenting his parents a little bit. But it's just, it's it's a short, small bonding moment between him and Harry. What did you guys think of that moment between Dudley and Harry?
2: I've read a lot of fics where Dudley is somehow magically changed at some point. And the good thing is that most of them don't ever involve, you know, Dudley and Harry becoming BFFE, you know. Yeah. They 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 still have a really a really cordial relationship with each other. It's very formal. It's very forced almost, but you know, at some point, in some of these stories, Dudley makes the choice, again, we come back to the idea of having a choice, but he makes the choice to, you know, accept Harry, in, in not so many words.
4: We, I mean, the whole thing about that conversation, I, I do like it, because they did seem to both mature and come to like a mutual, I don't want to say an understanding or common ground, but I mean, it, it, it was like a begrudging respect. Almost. At least on Dudley's end. But it was... The thing that got me is, you know, what does Dudley see when the Dementors get close? Yeah. And he says, you know, well, I saw... You're covered. You know? Yeah. Only it was me inside, my parents saying that kind of stuff. And then that... Just that realization, it totally... Adds a complete new element to Dudley's character and how different he would be if that was not his biggest fear. Because when you learn a person's biggest fear, you learn so much about them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And to see that that would be Dudley's biggest fear.
0: Well, I just thought that the Dementors pulled out your greatest fears from personal experience. And I never saw Dudley as being afraid of Harry's closet because he thought it was so funny. He used to make fun of it. I agree. And so for me, it was just not very believable because... Dudley is cruel, and Dudley is selfish and mean and vicious. And I would think that Dudley's dementor it would make him see something like um, a, you know, some like his parents praising Harry only, or um, well, I mean, here's well, that you know that is what he
4: sees. I mean, only the reverse. He doesn't see them praising Harry. But he hears them saying the same things that they always said to Harry about him being worthless and no good and useless, saying to him and taking away his possessions and stuffing in the cupboard. It's – they were complete opposites as kid, and he sees himself in Harry's shoes, and that's what scares him so much is losing all the acceptance he always had from his parents and his role in their eyes.
1: Yeah, like how many – Bullies? Do you think are kids who were afraid of being picked on themselves? So their way of getting back, you know, their way of appearing strong is to bully other children. You know, I'm wondering. I saw this as a bit of character growth for for Dudley, in that you know, while the canon, you know, frankly, you know, has him as you know this torpy little bully. You know, this is fan fiction, and fan fiction gets to spend a little bit more time fleshing these guys out, you know, how the author wants them to to appear. You know, is it possible that Dudley's a kid who is afraid of being abandoned? He is afraid that what happened to Harry will happen to him. So his response is to completely, you know, turn against Harry and everything Harry stands for and to be the ultimate bully so that he is actually fighting. You know, like I'm not Freud here, but, you know, or I'm not a psychiatrist here, but, you know, is he rebelling against that which he fears the most but
2: here's the thing i thought the dementors made you relive your worst memory not your worst fear i guess though so. i think all for what... are your greatest fear that's the dementors true. are his worst memory so i can't imagine that dudley could think that because he would have never had a memory like that i mean harry remembers you know, when he gets around Dementors, he remembers his parents dying because that's the worst thing that happened to him. It's mm-hmm. not because he's afraid of it, but it's because it's the worst thing that happened to him. That is the one the problem I have with this scene is because Dementors don't bring out something that you're afraid of. They bring out something that no, has happened. Point.
1: That's a good point. Uh, I'd be interested to hear Melinda's response to that. I will say, though, that, you know, that aside, you know, I, I do think that was... Uh, a really solid character moment for Dudley. Maybe the implementation of it, you know, Dementor versus Boggart was a little, you know, muddy. And obviously Joe said, we're going to find out what Dudley's worst memory is. Um, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. That's that, I. I really can't argue with that.
0: Yeah. I, I'm curious now. Hmm.
1: Melinda. <laughs> and I do, I do like how the scene ends. Like you said before, Harry and Dudley are, are actually bonding for the first time in their lives. And 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 Dudley references Voldemort and says, "You know, I saw you know you know Voldemort, and you know he wanted to kill you." And he just looks at Harry and he's like, "You make big enemies." And and from from Dudley, I think that's actually a compliment. And and Harry just laughs. And, you know, just to be Harry, you know, it's like the understatement of the year. I just thought that was such a great line.
0: He was just letting some steam go because he laughed a lot and and but i didn't understand dudley's reaction to it how he starts glancing at him the way he used to and like running off
1: well it's an odd reaction you're telling someone that you know dangerous people want to kill you and you like laugh maniacally i mean it's it's not what you would expect someone to do when you say that so now dudley is confused he doesn't know what's going on he's on harry's home turf so what's he doing he goes back to who he normally is and becomes, you know, the bully. So it's like the little moments closed up in and of itself. You have it, but it kind of goes away.
0: They decide, the girls decide that they haven't been spending enough time with their men and that they're going to give, they're going to have dates with them. And so they each claim an area of the castle and Hermione, this, this made me laugh because Hermione claims the kitchens for Ron, which, which I thought was funny. Um, and romantic, But Jenny, but I think Harry, was it Harry that complains? Why do they get the kitchen? And he doesn't get that, it at
2: first. Yeah, he
0: doesn't get it. And they go up to the room of requirements. And I'm like, dude, you got it so much better. <laughs> yeah. I mean, because I've always envisioned the kitchens as kind of cramped because the elves work there. And so it's all small. I, oh, no, I, I think it's, it's actually
1: I, written, it's the size of the Great Hall, but it's, it's directly below it, and it's got the four tables set up underneath where the, t- I hope I'm not really? getting this from Facebook. No, that's fiction. right. That's Is right. That right? Yeah, and the, and the four tables are set up, and they set the food up on those tables, and they, like, snap their fingers, and the house elves send the food up to the tables right above them.
0: Oh. That's not how I envision the kitchens at all, but I'm yeah, sure that's plus,
4: right. it's the school year, and there's no school, so they're probably not fully staffed on the elves in fact they probably have some privacy in the kitchen
0: well that's true well anyway i thought it was sweet and romantic and you know so they go up to the room requirements harry and jenny and it's a beach right yeah it is a beach
1: and it's yeah it's like one it's like one fine day it's like one perfect day (laughs) before oh i get to say it it's like it's like one perfect day before you know the the proverbial Uh. hits the fan um, I
0: really thought that they might have sex here and they didn't.
1: You were really hoping, weren't you, Jen?
0: Dude, I know that they're kids and I it's wrong and bad and but I did. I really thought for a minute when Harry throws it out the window that they might
1: when Harry you throws know? it I mean, out the window.
0: With his woes about how he's gonna die, I'm surprised with all and you know, to be honest, there's so much teen angst in this in this fic. And to be honest i was just positive he would pull the well i may not be around tomorrow card or you know i was just waiting
4: for that line he
1: pulls the i need something to live for and to come back to your card
4: <laughs> but he, no, he no no but i have to agree with jen because this is really kind of like his last chance they've gotten rid of all the horcruxes they're finally alone you know, and Harry realizes that his time might be short and it's not he's you know, hey, I'm might not be here tomorrow, baby, you know, I'm going off to war, what are you gonna do for me? But this is really kinda like their last romantic moment and you know they've matured enough in their relationship to go all the way. Yeah. And, you know, what better place to do it on a private moonlit beach?
1: No, I agree with that, but I'm going to disagree with one thing. I think five or six chapters ago, Harry would have done just that because he would have felt like this is like the end of his life. I think he's trying to give Ginny good memories just in case. And I think he is not, you know, believing that he's going to come back. He hopes he will, but he's determined now to do everything he can to come back. And I think, you know, that bedside scene when Ginny was in the infirmary, what that scene left us with was a Harry who has determined he will do everything he can to come back to Ginny. And if that means he's not going to sleep with her till he gets back, because that's one more thing he's in the will himself to survive for, he'll do that. And I thought that was the difference between the Harry of, you know, Diagon Alley and the Harry, you know, of Albania and the Harry we have now. He's coming back. If he can help it, he's coming back. And I think that he's finally believing that himself. And that was one of the notes I had down here for earlier in the chapter. Harry, you know, is at that point in his life where he is admitting to himself he's afraid of dying alone. And he's wanted to do this alone for the longest time to spare everybody, but he, you know, is afraid of dying alone and he knows he needs his friends to get him to the point where he can do this by himself. He needs his friends, you know, for cover, he needs his friends for backup. He he cannot do this by himself no matter how much will he has. So, I think he's admitted that he's going to use them, but he also, he's coming back.
2: Yeah, well, I can't, I'm not surprised they didn't have sex, because you don't like, sex on the beach is not as romantic as it sounds, because you get sand in places that it really shouldn't be. Oh, really?
4: It's so true, though, probably. (laughs) No, don't kill the moment. It was it was written nicely. It didn't happen. They had a quiet, romantic evening, which is everything I would have hoped for between these two. And I'm I'm glad it was written the way it was. I thought that particular scene probably couldn't have been written any better.
1: I agree with that, Rena. Is there anything you want to tell the uh, podcasting community, or are you good?
2: Um, I think I'm okay on this part.
1: Okay. Thank goodness, Max, never going to be able to go to the beach now without blushing.
2: So, then we get to the dun-dun-dun part of this particular chapter, where Pansy is looking for Draco, oh, and... Gosh. I didn't I, see I, this one coming. You know, I kn- I figured she was probably up to something. I didn't think Harry would be this dumb. Well, no, I but thought that... Let's go wandering out on the grounds <laughs> with someone. No, you know.
1: she she was standing there as he walked by to go to Hagrid's hut, and she was trying to lure him into the woods, and he wouldn't go. So she pulls his wand, and he expelliarmus's the wand. And that's what. I mean, I, I think she actually literally outsmarted Harry. I mean, I would have done everything she did. I wouldn't have gone to the woods. I would have disarmed her. I mean, how. Like, he, he notices she's wearing gloves, but I don't think he realized that the gloves apparently prevent the port key from activating.
3: That's well- true.
4: Yeah, I mean, he was really trying to be very safe about this. I mean, he he wasn't going to follow her. He tried to disarm her. He tried to take control of the situation, and I think that situation would have gotten the best of just about anyone because they weren't expecting – they might have even expected Pansy to betray them but not to to pull a port key out like that and and take him right away. I mean, that was really clever. I was was really uh, – as as soon as I got to the end of the chapter, I knew what was happening. Because as soon as you got to that last part about being Porky, you're like, I know exactly where he's going.
3: Yeah,
1: and I like where they took the story from there too, where Harry's decided, you know, on the inside that he's going to come back. He's in the fight. He's going to spend his life with Ginny. He's going to do everything he can. He's not even going to sleep with her until he gets back. And Ginny's response is, "Oh my God, that bastard left us behind. He he's been you know trying to say goodbye to me this whole week, and I get it. That's why you know we've been you know having all this quality time and." I love it she marches up to the wardrobe and knocks and Ron and Hermione are half naked inside and she's like get out I have news and Hermione comes out with like you know her blouse on inside out and Ron's all disheveled and I just I I just thought the moment was great where they completely misunderstand him and they think he's gone off himself to be the hero which he probably may have done anyway and and he's really been kidnapped by Pansy. It's
2: yeah. something that they wouldn't really expect.
0: I was shocked. I was surprised and I thought you know, cause I mean, she had the tears in her eyes. Man, she was laying it on thick. <laughs> that is true. Little death eater actress. Let's
1: say it, John, come on.
0: <laughs> I kind of was cheering when she died, even though I sort of felt sorry for her. It was sort of a, I don't know. It was sort of a the pedigree feeling when he died and after the end. Like I really felt that she deserved it, and yet I felt sorry because she was just naive and stupid
1: well that was the thing too it's like you hate her for what she did and she turned harry over to voldemort but i was listening to a podcast today and they said okay if someone says sign this piece of paper and sign you know your best friend's death warrant and they put a gun to your head would you sign it and everyone wants to say of course i wouldn't sign it i'd let them shoot me but then you know some part of you would say okay if i don't sign it they're probably gonna shoot them anyway so you know how many of us would would do the weak thing you know, no one wants to say, okay, you know, if if I love someone, you know, and I wanted them to be happy, I would sacrifice an innocent boy, you know, to get that. But how many of us would if, you know, if faced that circumstance? And I think that what Pansy does is she's given the choice, you know, you've lost Draco, you can live by my side or you can die. Pansy chooses to die. And yeah. she may have yeah. made an awful mistake to get there, but she doesn't run. She doesn't cower. She says, I am not living without Draco and Voldemort. In cold blood, kills her, and you have to give the character at least that she stood for something. You may disagree with what she stood for, and you can certainly disagree with the means that she used to get what she wanted. But she stood for something.
4: True. Well, and earlier in the fic, they compare they compare Draco and Pansy to Harry and Ginny, saying, "You know, we're in very similar situations here." And you know, would Ginny have bent the rules? To save Harry's life, probably would she have gone to the dark side to do it? No, but Pansy really was acting in the interest of love. Yeah. I mean, real, genuine love. And as far as motives go, you know, Pettigrew was a coward, she was doing it for fear of his own life, which I think is worse than what Pansy did. Even though she went the wrong way about them, they were based on love, and it's slightly harder—very, very teensy tiny, slightly harder. To hate her because of that. Yeah. Um, even yeah. though Draco is a prat and.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, and it's not pansy doesn't lead to anyone's death. She almost does, but she doesn't, you know, it, it's arguable that she actually leads to Voldemort's death, but yeah, her character, like you said, Jen, reminds me of um, after the end pedigree where at that last moment he finds his Gryffindor courage. And I, I thought that was interesting. I thought that was a very uh, classy way for, for the character to go out. I like that a lot. Ron and Ginny grab the Marauder's map, and they discover that Draco and Dudley are trapped in the charms classroom where Pansy had locked them. And, you know, Hermione goes off to talk to um, the Dumbledore brothers. And, you know, obviously he's progressing with her plan to save Harry. And I just, to back up, I know it's probably a couple chapters ago, I love that Hermione refers To and and they all do. They refer to it as the seventh Horcrux. They don't refer to it as Harry. And they even say, you know, back in Dumbledore's office, you know, we need to find a way to deal deal with the seventh Horcrux. Well, Harry's standing right there. It's kind of like the, it's kind of like the nice way. It's kind of like ethnic cleansing. It's like a, it's a nice way of referring to something terrible to try, because somehow that makes it feel better, even though it doesn't. I just thought that was a really clever thing.
0: Okay, I really like... I have to say that I particularly liked this, but I really thought that it might go somewhere with, um, with with Snape helping Pansy before she dies. He really was trying to get her to shut up and help her in a way. And, you know, Voldemort even makes a few comments towards it. And I just thought it was very interesting that he would attempt to help a Slytherin girl who he was the head of house, like, it made it seem a little bit like he cared, but he can't have cared, right?
1: Well, she was supplying information to their side and he was, she, you know, her family, you know, her father, you know, was, was he a Death Eater, Parkinson? Yeah. Yeah. Her father was a Death Eater, you know, she's in the dark side, she's been, she just turned Harry Potter over to Voldemort, she's one of his students You know, I'm sure he felt on some level.
4: Well, actually, I don't know about that. Maybe she. You know, well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you what I think it is. It's that unlike Voldemort, Snape has just enough of conscience to where he does not promote killing for the sake of killing, murder for the sake of murder, and he knows that if Pansy keeps on going on, she's going to get herself killed for no other reason than she won't shut up, and Snape doesn't want her to die just for that doesn't think that's good enough reason and it's not so much that he's trying to help her because he's a good person or because he doesn't you know he just he doesn't like the idea of her being killed just because she's yeah. talking about Draco It's kind of pointless and I think he's trying just for her sake to say you know hey shut up because this you need to shut up. And you know, because he does, he's not a fan of just completely senseless, mindless violence.
1: Yeah, I can see that. Plus, I think one thing I was struggling to say was that you know they're Slytherins, and he was his old, he was her old teacher, and he may not think she's worth a lot, but you know it's kind of like Slytherins take care of Slytherins, that kind of thing. I think there was a little bit of that playing in there too.
0: I guess I just thought it was a little out of character for what she would created for his character, and yet I liked it. And I really wish that it could have gone so I wish I just understood kind of where she was trying to go with that.
1: Snape isn't a totally evil, I hate the world person. He certainly hates Harry. He certainly, you know, is not working for the order in this fic. He's certainly a very dark person. But he also took an unbreakable vow for Draco Malfoy. And he did it for Narcissa. Even though he hates Harry as much as he does, he still does teach him he still does, you know, give him, you know, tips, you know, even though he's in the plan to kill Harry, he's still, you know, he, he's a tough nut to crack. He's not totally good. He's not totally evil. And he feels like Dolores Umbridge feels that he's justified. And I just, I just think there is that part of his character that would look out for Pansy and try and save her if he could. I mean, he hasn't like jump in the path of the, like if I I mean, he's not willing to go that far, but he would.
0: Right, right. Well, I mean, as soon as Voldemort says anything, you know, he's like, okay, and, like, walks back to his potion. So he obviously didn't concern himself too much with it, but I don't know. I felt that Voldemort was very amused by his attempts at helping her.
1: I think he was amused. I think he just tried to stop it, like, I don't have time for this, you know, know your place, Severus,
4: that kind of thing. Yeah, I I got that impression, too. He's got Harry right there in front of him. He could really care less about Pansy.
0: I know. I just tough for me to get into this fake, and I, I just I don't. I keep questioning myself why, what it is, why, and I think it's just because the the characters in some ways they just seem so young, and as fun as that is to read, I wish that at times I don't know. And there are good things. I enjoyed There's you know I've enjoyed reading this fake, you know, but it's not something that I have taken aspects of it with me there's not many parts of it that I go oh my goodness you know and sit and, and think about it and, and you know there are parts that I really liked like the snake part I wish that I understood more about it you know why he was suddenly doing that I really liked that they were that snape was so carelessly trying to kill harry with the with the potion I didn't understand why getting any of it in a system wouldn't really hurt him you know
1: I think you got some of it but the, yeah, with the with the dry of the living death you mean?
0: Yes. I didn't understand what the Draco and Harry thing was.
1: Draco seal Draco shields Harry's mind so that that Voldemort won't know that he's planning to knock him into the veil.
0: I don't know why. It's always just kind of been funny to me that Draco and Narcissa was were the ones to try to teach Harry to occlude and I really like that Harry, that Draco is seemingly Good.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think at this point in the story, Draco, the only way for Draco to live is to be on Harry's side. I mean, you know, it's if Harry doesn't live, then Draco doesn't live, so he's forced into it. I think that Draco as a character is a very cold, very emotionless, dark, unfeeling person, and because of that, he is just a model oclements. and I think. Harry being, you know, the emotional basket case that he is during most of these fics, cannot, you know, in any way meditate or clear his mind and he's he's just he's not suited for it. So I think Draco at the end there is able to help Harry hold it together so that he can, you know, not let Voldemort anticipate every single move that he's going to make and by doing that Draco is completely invaluable. On the matter of of the potion I think that it said that, you know, if Harry swallowed it, he would get, you know, such a burst of it into his system that that he would instantly, you know, go into a comatose state and never recover from it. But I think what actually happened was some of it may have dripped down his throat, but he spits it out, so only that very, very faint trace actually got into his system.
0: I thought Hermione's reaction to it was hilarious.
1: Oh, which was um, when
0: she finds out and he's like, Yeah, I have the drought of living death put down my throat and she's like, What?
4: <laughs> yeah. Like, and, hello, come on. Well, like, she's the only... I don't think any of them have had experience with it. And she's the person who, if anyone's going to understand the gravity of that situation, it's going to be Hermione.
1: Yeah, it's like getting told your kid just swallowed, like, detergent. It's like something that you know is fatal and there's no cure for it. And Harry saying quasi-nonchalantly, like, Oh, yeah, I just drank some of it.
4: <laughs> well, I think a very example would be, like, being... Told that you have a type of cancer that you don't really understand, yeah. and then telling it to a doctor, and the doctor's like, "Seriously, that's that's like a, a very life-threatening cancer. You've probably got a week to live." Yeah, and you're like, "Oh, I didn't know what it meant. I just cancer." Man. Yeah, yeah. Let me let me let me ask this, and let's just throw this out there. What has happened is we have just suddenly been thrown into the scene where Harry goes from beaches with Ginny to almost within an hour later, very yeah. quickly, to being right there, being about to be given the draw of Levine death, and then given a little bit of it, and then he's he's there to, to face his final battle uh, is what it's coming down to. And what do you guys think about it all just exploding like this? Do you think this was a good way to go about it? Or do you think... I mean, because to me, it really seemed like it came in two parts, which was the... Harry in the chamber by himself being poisoned, and then Harry in the ministry. Um, And I I found it kind of confusing the way those two suddenly slid into each other.
1: I took it that the the chamber was in the ministry, and Harry was able to transport himself and Snape to the veil Room. Is how I read the scene. I read the scene that that they were in the ministry the entire time, but Harry was able to move them to that different point in the ministry. Is that what you took from it?
4: Basically, but I mean, just just the the, as a whole.
1: I think that if you look at it from the perspective of the canon, you always have that scene at the end where all of a sudden things are fine, things are fine, things are fine. Oh my god, you know this is it, and you don't have a lot of time to prepare for it. And it's not like you know you're sitting and you know you're foxhole and you see the enemy coming from 20 miles away. I mean, this is something where it just all of all of a sudden happens. So let's look at how it happens. You have Harry obviously taken from Hogwarts. You have, you know, Ginny, Ron, you know, Hermione and Draco decide that they're going to go after, you know, Pansy and Harry. And, you know, you have this, I thought extremely touching moment where, you know, Hagrid decides I'm coming to Harry needs me. I'm going for Harry and think about Hagrid. Hagrid's the guy who was the first person that Harry met from the wizarding world. Hagrid has a deep connection to Harry. And when they get outside the gates, Hogwarts comes under attack and Hagrid says, you need to, it's like the scene from the end of philosopher's stone. You need to keep going. I'm staying here. I'm defending the school. You know, Hermione sends, you know, word to the order who again, you know, don't know the school's under attack. And it's just this, it's a, it's, it's just such a moving moment where Ginny, you know, breaks down and hugs ha- Hagrid and, you know, you know that Hagrid's not going to come out of this. And he says, you, you know, Harry needs him more than I do. And I just, I love the language they use. They all disapparated, but the loud crack is Hagrid bellowed a roar of combined grief and rage before charging into the fray. This is Albus Dumbledore's school. You know, everyone he cares about is inside that school. You know, he's sending off, you know, Young children without him to the ministry, and Hagrid just is pissed. And I just thought it was such a powerful moment. And then you know, this is how we knew it would end. We knew it with them, with the with the trio. We didn't know about Ginny or Draco, but they were all at, at the ministry. And and this is what we've been frankly been prepared for for you know books and books. So I, I felt as though it you know we had a lot of time to to consider it. So it didn't feel sudden to me.
2: I don't I don't think it felt sudden in that sense. I mean, obviously, it's not like, yay, this is exactly what I thought was going to happen, but it's not like blindsided out of the blue. Yeah, it
0: wasn't like out of the blue or anything.
4: I guess I, I guess it was just me then, because, I mean, I, I knew something was coming, but it, it literally came to a close so fast, I thought it would have been drawn out a little bit longer than it actually was. Like I thought, I, that
2: that know, I can understand. Yeah, I can
4: relate at that to point.
2: that. it did kind of slam. You know, not slam, but it did It was kind over of just, very quickly. Like, <laughs> okay, wait. <What? laughs> right.
0: We're fine. It's okay.
1: I don't know about that. I disagree with that because I think that the, the or, I, I think the the last scene we had in the veil of room in order of the phoenix was very drawn out. I think the goblet a fire scene uh, in the graveyard took you know probably in this it it took place over you know the course of seven minutes um you know chamber secrets you know was a real fast scene uh philosopher's stone was a real fast scene i think azkaban got dragged out you know because of all the time travel involved but i don't know it's you know obviously just to recap it starts out you know in in the in the chamber and you know harry refute. and i love the language harry you know he has the the drought in his throat and there's you know all hope seems to be lost and he doesn't know what's happening he doesn't know if everyone's dead and it would be so easy just to swallow and not have to care anymore but he thinks of jenny and he thinks of you know uh, hang on i have the language here on this too it's um Harry shook himself mentally, refusing to travel down that dark path. Instead, he thought of his mission and the people he sought to protect. They were a fierce group of fighters, and none of them would ever give up and simply allow Voldemort to win. And Harry feels such strength from all the people who have trained him for this moment that he literally overpowers the Binding Curse, gets up, spits out the drug, of the living death, knocks Voldemort into, like, the next room and, you know, causes a cave-in to keep him out, and starts dueling Snape. And I, I think that's you know an amazing moment for Harry, and you know obviously he somehow transports them into the into the chamber, and then you know Harry and and the others start dueling Snape, and it's like four on one, and Snape you know taunts Harry that you know he can't stand a fair fight, and Harry retorts it was sixteen on one a few minutes ago, and you didn't seem to have a problem with that, and it's and this is something we've seen you know consistently through the story. It's only when Harry's Family is threatened. That Harry really acts, and you have you know you have Snape use Sectumsempra on Ginny, and at that point Harry becomes so enraged he completely you know pounds Snape into the floor and 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 just knocks him out. And I I it's just one of those great moments for Harry. He gets through it, you know. Not it's kind of like what I was talking about earlier with Dumbledore. I didn't think he needed to have the portrait there you know, with all of Dumbledore's memories to be effective, I think what Dumbledore taught Harry in six books was sufficient. And I think that, you know, he doesn't, he's alone in that cave, but he has everyone else there with him. And based on everything they've taught them, he's able to overpower Snape. And because of how much he cares for Ginny, he finds the strength to completely overpower a far stronger wizard than he is and I, I think so much of the story is about hope and I, I just I really liked that scene at the end and now you know we're when we're to the point where we have to prepare for the final engagement and, and Draco you know who is cowering you know behind a chair the whole time comes out and agrees you know he finds out that Pansy's dead and picture Harry finding out Jimmy's dead he finds out Pansy's dead she was his hope he he finds out that she betrayed you know Harry you know Arlo I'm sure he wouldn't consider that a betrayal, but he finds out that she tried to make a pact with Voldemort, which he considers foolish, and it didn't work, and she died. And he still is willing to help Harry because he wants to avenge Pansy. Because Pansy, like I said last podcast, is the weak link. She is something that he cares about tremendously.
0: Though, she didn't seem too heartbroken,
4: really. I thought he was. I thought he was more furious oh. than heartbroken.
0: Yeah, just kind like of, it was, what? Oh,
4: I thought the anger was kind of his first... Reaction, and that would make sense in that situation. If you're there and Snape's there, it would make sense that the first thing he would would think, or uh, and Voldemort's there, would be to be furious and want to get his comeuppance with Voldemort too.
0: Right. Well, I like how they have him. They go. They have him show what he would have done before he finds out what she did, and and show that he actually is pretty smart in the workings of Voldemort. You know, that he's not just another... That he sees what Voldemort is really like, you know, saying, oh, well, she wouldn't do that. Voldemort would do this and this and this. Like, if only Pansy had talked to Draco, he would have talked her out of it. Yeah. Right. You know? and it, But it was just... I kind of felt at the end that it was maybe, yeah, they were together, but it was more like a I'm bored crush rather than true love like Jenny and Harry. Like, Harry would... I'm not sure Harry would go on. You know, that would just be it if if Jenny died and, and but you know, Draco is kind of like, Well, she's that was stupid. <laughs> she
1: yeah, should have known better. You no, know, I I didn't get the sense it was just a crush though. I think it was laid from very very early on that Draco really cares for Pansy. And I'd argue that he loves Pansy and you know, one of the one of the moments of sadness from the final chapters is just exactly what he has to go through without Pansy and
4: I suppose maybe. Uh-huh. <laughs> Let's get to the the grand finale of this chapter. I mean, why we really read this chapter, and even to back it up a little bit before that, um, okay. you have
1: you know in previous moments throughout these chapters, you have Harry you know admit to his friends that that's the plan. I'm going to push him through the veil, and mm-hmm. and you have. His friends, you know, desperate not to have him sacrifice himself, and they've come up with a plan that he can't know anything about. And we as the readers don't know what this, you know, master plan is either. And we're at the point now where we know they have something up their sleeve. They don't know if it's going to work. We don't know if it's going to work. And Voldemort can't, you know, be let in on the fact that there is, you know, something amiss. So, you know, what do you do at this point? So Draco is going to use occlumency to shield harry and at this point he figures out about the horcruxes because harry hasn't had the opportunity to remove them from his mind and um oh. I'm sorry, it's kind of like the scene with Dudley, when Dudley figures out that there's more to Harry than he ever realized. Draco now understands exactly what Harry's been going through this year, and he's been mocking Harry and the cho- as the chosen one. You know, what are you waiting for? Get on with it so the rest of us can live our lives. I think for the moment there at the end, once he lost Pansy and once everything kind of progressed, I think he really realized exactly what Harry's been going through. And we're at this moment now when, you know, he, he orders his friends to shield themselves behind, you know, huge rocks and, you know, he, everything, you know, he's wounded from the battle with Snape and everyone takes cover and, you know, Voldemort, you know, thought he was at Hogwarts and now realizes he's at the ministry and he's on his way. And there's that scene where, you know, Voldemort glides into the room and, you know, he's, uh, he's like more than human. He's just, he's his presence that, you know, enters the room and this is it.
4: And I got to say, in terms of what Draco and Harry are going through together at this moment, this is the first time, uh, it's one of the fics where I really didn't absolutely hate Draco's the character. Because even though he was an incredible prat throughout most of the story, he finally gets here to the end and he understands exactly what Harry's been going through. And he just is at a loss for word and he says, good luck.
3: Good luck. And it's
4: where he, he finally steps up and plays, I don't want to say the good guy role, but I mean, at the end, he really does his part, because without Draco, I don't think Harry could have pulled off what he's about to pull off.
1: And it's not a completely selfish good luck. It's not good luck, you know, you better save my life. It's not...
0: It's not so sarcastic? It, yeah, it's... It was genuine.
1: Yeah, it's yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's genuine. It's good luck. And there's... And Mac, you haven't read anything else of Melinda's, is that right? You haven't read... No, this was the first thing I read of hers. Alright, Oh,
0: f- you've got to read or power of
1: emotion. Yeah one of uh. the f- one of the fun things about reading this for me has been that um, there's a lot of if, it, it's kind of like if you've ever read or I'm sorry it's, it's kind of like if you've ever watched anything by Aaron Sorkin on TV he he write he's um, he did The West Wing he did Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip and he did the show called uh, Sports Night back in the late 90s and I love all of his stuff and if you watch it he tends to recycle actors. And he recycles, you know, plot lines and lines of dialogue. So if you watch an episode of The West Wing, you might realize it's the actor who played so and so on Sports Night, and that's the same line of dialogue from that episode of, you know, Studio 60. So it's, it's things kind of recycle. So I'm noticing reading this that Melinda may recycle, you know, a plot device or, you know, a specific line of dialogue. And that's not to say that, you know, she's, you know, stealing from herself. I, I, I like it. I think it's a really, Cool way of doing it, and I know at some points she's bent over backwards to try, like with Aber- with uh, a Dumbledore, she bent over backwards to make this April 4th different from the one from Curse of the Damned. And I love the moment when Harry is is dueling with Voldemort and he's trying to slow him down and he's trying to distract him, and he eventually just starts, you know, they're, they're firing off curses at each other, and it reminds me very much of the end of Curse of the Damned. When he is screaming off curses, and this one's for Bertha Jorgens, and this one's for, for you know, Sirius, and this one's, you know, for, for, um, you know, Frank the Gardener, whatever his name was, and, you know, he, he, he just starts going down the list, and, you know, it, it's almost like those people's spirits from the other side of the veil are coming back, you know, to seek vengeance against Voldemort for what he did. And th- this one's for Remus, and this one's for Tonks, and he gets stronger you know as he is channeling you know the the people who have been wronged by Voldemort and as he you know gets stronger the voices get louder and Voldemort gets more frightened and gets weaker i just it, it's just a tremendous tremendous scene i thought
4: yes and i think one of the big things is it's it's definitely been made a point up to the now that the only thing that Voldemort is really afraid of is death and dying and the fact that he can hear the voices of all his victims coming through the veil means that this is basically death haunting him. And I think if Harry hadn't called out those names and hadn't pulled out those voices, that's what made it so effective. Is Because he was facing Voldemort to face the deaths that he had created and that these voices were coming back to Voldemort. It, it was not just what Harry was doing, but the fear of all these voices coming back to him, death coming back to him that made this the pivotal end moment for Voldemort.
1: Yeah. And it's that exactly that. And, you know, Harry reduces him to the point where, you know, he, he's essentially Tom Riddle again. He's no longer even Voldemort. He's, you know, the, the handsome face of Tom Riddle. And it's at this moment when we realize what, you know, Hermione has been planning all of this time and they toss Harry a snitch, and as soon as they toss him the snitch, they yell at him to use the curse he didn't think would work, which, of course, is Avada Kedavra. And he does it, and in doing so, and then grabbing the snitch, he creates his own horcrux. And he does this while he's focusing on all of the you know, the love in his life and, and the people who have meant everything to him, and it separates... You, you know the the part of Voldemort that was you know infesting him and you know leeching onto him and the, the horcrux you know goes through the veil and there's you know it, I, I love the description at this point you know it, it it feels like you know harry doesn't even know who he is for a moment it's like you know what just happened here? You know, Harry's been afraid he'd become like the long bottoms if the, if the, if the soul was ripped out of them right. and you, you don't know what's happening and it works and Voldemort is defeated and Harry is alive and Snape and Snape tries to kill him <laughs> and Snape tries to taunt him you know, with his <laughs> wand point to that. saying, you know how, you know, interesting that, you know, you defeated the Dark Lord but you can't even raise your wand to defend yourself and then Ginny, like, walks up with a proverbial frying pan and, like, beats him over the head. Of course, she doesn't do that. She, you know, curses him (laughs) and and ties him up so tightly and rushes to Harry, but, you know, even Snape at the end is still trying to take out Harry and I just... It's just one of those moments where it's like boom 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 and all of a sudden Voldemort's defeated and you're like, Whoa, what just happened? And I'm glad that Harry realized that he created a horcrux because I personally missed it until Harry, you know, realized yeah. it was stated.
0: I just didn't know that somebody can make a horcrux accidentally. I
1: well, guess. well it was stated in you know previously that the there's no spell to do it. This is what Renus finds out. There's no spell to do it. You just have to be very focused on it. And he's so focused. You know, he, he, he want you have to want the person to die, and you have to be very focused. And he's focused on wanting Voldemort to die, and he's focused on the love that he feels, and that love grounds his soul, while Voldemort's soul retreats, and, and, and it and, and that's what makes it possible. I never thought of Harry creating a Horcrux, and I like that because you know, even you know, Remus says you know in the previous chapter, you know, you can't be. Considering making something so vile, and at that point he doesn't know that Harry has, a, has a, um, a Horcrux in him. So Harry never divides his own soul; he divides off the part of, the, of his soul that never should have been there because it belongs to Riddle. And I, I, I just thought it was a very neat way of doing it that I never myself I, I never considered it.
4: And I I like the concept, if only because if you are in the seventh book, going to make Harry a Horcrux? Because a lot of people said, is that even possible? We couldn't even find the answer earlier. But if that is possible, this seems like the perfect solution to it. If Harry has a piece of Voldemort's soul in him, then the best way to do it is the only time Harry wants to use that killing curse would be to kill Voldemort. I mean, I can't see him using that on anyone else. Well, let's say he's a Dementor. Unless a Dementor sucks out of them, Or a Dementor sucks out of him. But I'm saying in, in this instance... If the only way to make a Horcrux is to kill someone and the only person he's going to kill is Voldemort, then it's two birds with one stone because it's taking out Voldemort and at the same time taking that piece of soul that doesn't belong in him in the first place out of him Mm -hmm. and leaving him truly Harry Potter for the first time since he was a year old. True.
0: Must be weird.
4: And, I mean, what a perfect way to bring everything from the past 16, 17 years to a close in terms of the Horcruxes. Because he's, he's taken out two at once, basically. He's taken out the piece inside of him and the piece still inside of Voldemort. Yeah.
0: I admit that I like, I like how she made that happen. I was curious to see how she was going to save him, and it, and, it, and it works out.
1: Yeah, I wasn't sure what I thought. I thought I... I was imagining something where Harry would feel love so much that the soul in him would just, you know, dissipate or something that belonged to Voldemort. I thought thought they were going to actually, it's like the scene, you know, where they just, like, give him a bear hug and he dies. I just thought it was going to be like, where where they hug the soul too much and the soul dies. I, I wasn't sure, so I definitely think this is a much more, um... I
0: think, I thought it would be something more like, something like that happened in the Draco trilogy where Harry would die and then they would resuscitate him by some means. And so when he died, any pre-existing curse would have been lifted, and he could he could go on with his life.
4: Claire! The thing that I really liked was their choice of what to make into the Horcrux, which was the snitch that yeah, had that- caught <laughs> to, to win the, the Quidditch Cup their previous year. Because when I think of that scene, it's when they have their first kiss. The several sunlit days kiss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's when I first is cemented in canon for me Ginny and Harry as a couple so to you know to use that object from that moment that's like the most positive love element in an actual physical form, an inanimate object that would be what I would think of, something along that, or the house cup itself.
1: That does make sense because I actually never really expected um, I never actually made that connection in my mind, it, ne- it makes perfect sense because the snitch was in McGonagall's office and, right. that's, and where, that's that's where Dumbledore was, and that's where Dumbledore told Hermione. That makes sense. I actually missed that before
4: uh, reading. And through the it. Snitch has to be important. The object being used for Horcrux itself has to be important because if they thrown him an old boot and been like, "Kill him," he'd be like, it, "It's it's not a port key. This is supposed to be a Horcrux," and then the whole thing screwed up, and Harry's dead. So exactly. I mean, I'm glad that she considered <laughs> using the Snitch too. Yeah, Yeah, no, I thought that was.
1: I, I think it was a very great scene, and I'm actually sad that we're ending here because. Chapter three, I thought was one of the best chapters of the fic, and I, I'm really looking forward to talking about that one.
4: Well, here's yeah. why I'm sad because you know at the very end, Harry's still got a bit of the Drought of the Living Death in him. True, and and he falls asleep at the end of this chapter. He he finally closes his eyes and fades to black. So we don't yes. know if he's going to make through this or not. And you know, I'm I'm really waiting to find out at the end of this if that drought ends up killing him. I can't imagine after surviving through all, all of this he's not gonna make it but you know if for our readers who are reading along we don't know if Harry's actually gonna make it through this he does still have that poison or that potion in him that is true and not to mention he's been beaten bloodied and now we're ending go figure thanks a lot Ryan
1: yeah exactly you gotta wait till next week to figure <laughs> out what happens to him and just to let everybody know, Rinda did have to drop out about 15 minutes ago. She got some dinner guests, or the goat came over, or, you know, there's a random <laughs> cow in her living room or something. So she will hopefully be back with us next week for the final thoughts on uh, the 7th Horcrux. Mac, thank you so much for uh, joining us tonight.
0: Absolutely. Always Yay. a pleasure.
1: Yeah, we hope to have you back. Uh, you're definitely welcome anytime. With that, I think uh, we're about ready to get out of here.
0: So, bye, folks.
1: Have a great night, everybody. We'll talk to you next week. Have a wonderful day,
4: evening, afternoon, wherever you are. I love you. Hey, everyone, it's Mac again. I have a special treat for you this week. I managed to steal the mailbag from Ryan, and I've realized that he's actually been hiding some of the emails. Apparently, the staff at Potterfic Weekly gets personal emails, not just emails about the fic, so I thought I'd share with you all a few uh, emails I've gotten. Our first email is from an anonymous female who says, Dear Mac, you sound extremely good-looking when you're talking on the podcast. Everything you say sounds really great. Is there a chance that you're as good-looking in person as you sound on the podcast? I think, I'm sorry to say, ladies, that's a question you would have to ask to my girlfriend, but... I would happen to say that I'm fairly good-looking. Thank you for noticing. We have a second email here from one of our members who says, Dear Mac, apparently you and Luna Lovegood make quite the couple on the forums. Is there any chance we'll be getting more fics about the two of you and your actions in Ravenclaw common room? Uh, I think it's pretty safe to say that if you would like to read some of the stories about Mac and Luna, you can find them on Potterfic forums. And with a little bit of encouragement, I might even continue those fics about us. Uh, we also got an email from Free Winky from our forums about the chapters we are currently discussing. See, sometimes people do email us about what we're reading. For chapter 24, Free Winky said, The best part of having Ron work with your team is his exuberance and knack uh, spot of humor in any situation presented to him. It's really great to have someone like Ron who can be not just a sidekick for you, but a little bit of comic relief. I personally really love Ron's character, and I'm glad that you notice that too, because he really can seem to make the best out of any situation, uh, no matter how dire it might seem. For Chapter 25, Free Winky said, Mad-Eye M- Mad Moody's magical eye can see through anything, right? That's really creepy. Shudders. Um, I think that would be especially creepy for girls. Imagine a guy who could walk around with a magical eye that would see through anything. Um, But he's a little distracted right now with uh, Madame Pomfrey, which is another situation I just don't want to think about. Shudder's on my part, too. Free Winky also says, It won't give out any of the story to spoil for anyone, but Dudley's sudden interest in magic, and especially in the dark part of magic, is really very creepy. I think we can all agree that Dudley and the dark arts would be a scary combination, uh, especially if he directs his hatred towards Harry Potter. For chapter 26, Freewinky says, I really appreciate the patience shown by Ron, Hermione, and Ginny in the fic. It does get a wee bit irritating when Harry gets into the I shouldn't have involved you or all because of me syndromes. It can get really taxing for these three to constantly convince Harry that it is not your fault. It has to or had to have happened. I think that's a really good point because Harry always has that mentality when he's talking to his three closest friends. And when you take the time to consider it, that would be very taxing for any friend to be put in to constantly have to remind your friend that the reason you are helping them in such a dangerous quest is because you care about them. For chapter 27, Free Winky says, One question. Is the Cruciatus curse hurt more when it is aimed at the chest? I hope we never find out, but still the question remains. I personally would think that the curse would be the same no matter where it is aimed, but it's most likely aimed at the chest because it is the biggest target, um, and there is less chance of missing with the curse. Um, For chapter 28, Free Winky says... I'd like to see a scene where petite Ginny is turning her fury full blast on a much taller and stronger Malfoy, and Malfoy is actually stepping away from her. Wow, that'd just be an awesome sight for sore eyes. Uh, for some of us who aren't as big a fan of Draco, I would really enjoy seeing Draco gain his comeuppance at the end of Ginny's wand tip, because she certainly deserves it if anyone does. But at the same time, there are a lot of people who uh, like to see a much friendlier relationship between Malfoy and Ginny. And to them, they probably wouldn't enjoy the scene as much as you would. Uh, we also had a personal email for Jen that said, Dear Jen, if you live in such a dangerous area with tarantulas, storms, and floods going on, why don't you simply move to someplace safer? And I think I can say safely that the Perfect Weekly cast has asked her not to move specifically so that we can have more stories to tell. Anyways, for Potterfic Weekly, this is Mac with your weekly mailbag. If you have any comments you'd like to send, just email them to staff at com.
0: Oh my gosh, you guys want to know what I'm doing right now. Well, I'm just finished. I just stabbed myself. I'm so behind in the dishes uh-huh. that my, my mom actually made me dinner to to bring over because so, I was in a hurry. And I don't have any silverware, so I'm I ate with my. Uh, have y'all seen like those um, salad fork and spoon? Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> a fork.
2: <laughs> you it's ate not, dinner with your salad tongue.
0: <laughs> it's not a tong because they're not connected. Like it's you know it's it's real silver, but it's like these match.
2: <laughs> they're massive. Oh god. <laughs> but so I got out a paint pen and I reworded her license plate thing because it bothered me so much
1: which did you change it to of which oh you there are you
2: talking to
1: I was talking to Rena. Rena? R- oh my god the yokels gather. Rena? <laughs> all right here we go okay and mo- oh let me sorry <laughs> Renna hasn't changed since you left I know. All right.
2: It's very refreshing. Yes,
1: it is. We actually got worse. All right. And welcome back to Paraphic Weekly. This is Ryan.
2: And Jan. Sorry. <laughs> what was the boob? <laughs>
1: sorry. Rin is back, why? everybody. What? What?
2: I talked at the same time as you did. That's why I said sorry. Oh,
0: really? I heard you after.
1: Oh, God. No. Let's start the show over again. We're going to do it in alphabetical order. Welcome back. Oh, no.
0: <laughs> we tried that one. We, we had an episode. It didn't work out. We
1: had five We've people been... on the podcast. I introduced everyone and said, then we're going in alphabetical order, and there was silence while everyone tried to mentally put themselves in alphabetical order. All right. Okay. And welcome back to Parfix Weekly, everybody. This is Ryan. I'm Ryan. And
0: Jen. Oh, shit. Fucking <laughs> <laughs> mean, shit. Rina, you do it. Sorry. <laughs> and I'll charge. Okay. No, it's totally fine. <laughs> I Okay, go, Ryan. All right, <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right, all
1: right, all right. All right, stop laughing. This isn't funny. All right.
0: You're the one laughing. You're the one
2: laughing, yeah. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. <laughs> oh all, right. All, right, all right, all right, all right. The inmates are in charge of the asylum here. <laughs> <laughs> all
1: right, and welcome back to Power Fake Weekly, everybody. This is Ryan.
2: I'm Rena. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I started. Like,
0: okay, oh God, I'm muting myself. Goodbye. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we can do this. We're professionals. We have 20 episodes on purpose. <laughs> Day is obviously July 11th. But...
0: Day is what?
1: Well, by the t- oh. time it comes... Eaten. I
0: was like, oh my god, I'm missing <laughs> the movie, But <Bye." laughs>
2: <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm like, Do you, you honestly happen? think we would be here if it was the 11th?
0: <laughs> I know. I re- Oh god, sorry, my heart just fluttered. Right. Okay. Right.
1: Here we go. <laughs> okay, and that's all I got. Jen, you got anything? Jen died. Jen... Hang on. (laughs) Jen?
4: Well, she's not singing.
1: I'm wondering if she's talking and doesn't realize we can't hear her.
4: (laughs) Jen?
1: Jen, this is why the episodes take five hours to record.
0: That is not my fault. Damn the mute button. (laughs)
4: <laughs> All right, Jen, I need you to stop muting the episode. I just, I just no. realized the problem with podcasting is you guys can't see my off-topic sign that I'm holding up over here.
1: Just keep holding it up. No. Mac. Yeah, that thing is completely powerless against us on podcasting. It just, it ain't happening, man. And jumping into this week's episodes, which are uh, chapters twenty-four through twenty-nine of Melinda Leo's "After the End." Oh crap! It's not "After the End." <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
4: We don't make any comparisons, I swear. All right. Well, it's good you said because it's episodes 24 through 29 is what you just said, so. Uh,
1: And I got the name of the fic wrong. Other than that, I think this is going very well. All right. You know, pumping. We need to get out of here now. We can't operate in the house. We need to get outside. And they make it outside. And, you know, the chapter ends with, you know, Harry, you know, falls to his knees. And he suddenly is afraid that he's actually going to die in that godforsaken place. I mean, that's a very powerful moment. And that's a dog.
2: No, I'm going to go let my dogs in. Y'all keep... Y'all going. I'll come uh,
1: back. Well, hang on. Well,
2: hang on a second Actually, you. I need to take a potty break. I'll All be right,
1: right back. Ahead. Just... I'm going to grab my cell phone. Hang on a second.
4: Yeah, it's fine. I'll sit here. I'll talk to myself. I don't care. i have a lovely little conversation by my own son. Nobody's listening. It is recording, though. Even though everybody's gone. This week, you can't leave Matt by himself. He will just... He'll start talking in third person. And have a conversation with himself. It's incredible. It's like the Weasley twins, but not nearly as funny.
2: Yeah, exactly. I think that... Hang on, I forgot what I was going to say. Great. I'm playing with a Sharpie, so that's probably why. <laughs> like My sister had glittery. one of those... No, she had one of those Sharpie retractable pens, and I stole it. And I'm like,
1: wow, this is amazing. It keeps you occupied for an entire evening.
2: It does, man. I am so easily entertained.
1: You have to be living Never. near the goats, but carry on what what you're saying. I don't remember.
2: I still don't know what the hell I was going to say earlier. <sighs> oh,
1: you'll remember it later, and I'll just cut it in. Are you cutting something, by the way? No. She's clicking her Sharpie pen. Yeah. This is sh- I'm like, what is that? It sounds like you're cutting somebody's <laughs> hair. I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs>
2: Yeah, I'm cutting someone's hair. Don't you always give people trims while you're recording your podcast? (laughs) I I will put my Sharpie down so I don't play with anything. Renna
1: Renna is shaving the goat in the middle of the podcast. That's how, like, (laughs) down-to-earth Perfect Weekly has become. Okay, guys, I think we're dying I only caught,
2: like, every other word of that. Are you serious? Yeah, like, it sounded... It was kind of funny. It was like... All of a sudden, it (laughs) got
1: really slow, and then
2: it speeded up for a thousand, and then I got back to your normal voice. (laughs) (laughs) That'd
1: be great if I'm like, imagine he died, and then it's like... If you've heard anything in this episode that you would like to comment on or would like to contribute to the show, you can email any of our staff at their names at PotherficWeekly.com or you can email staff at PotherficWeekly.com. If you would like to send in a voicemail message, you can either call 781 352 0643 and you can leave a voicemail up to two minutes in length or you can email us an audio file to our email address, and we can play that on the show. You can also download a program called The Gizmo Project, and you can uh, contact us that way through your computer. For more information, visit potherficweekly.com.